Hello, my friends, and welcome back to not only Phantom Talk, but to the Star Wars EU or EU review. We are so excited to be back. I do want to take a moment and, you know, not necessarily apologize because things do happen, but at least give you all a kind of heads up. Um, a lot of stuff has been moving in our personal lives, um, literally and, phys and uh, uh, figuratively. Um, my sister has been moving to a new place, so I, we've been helping her out. If you've been watching my streams, you know that I have not streamed in like a little over a week. Um, and it is because life and constantly doing different things to get her moved completely and uh, get all that taken care of. So we have been kind of taking a little bit of a break um, from doing different things for fan and correspondence. But I promise we have already got some things planned for not only just next month of May. But just summer in general, uh, I'm really excited for some new streams. We're really excited for some new podcasts you know, that we that we're going to be having. Um, yeah, we just we've got a lot of really cool stuff coming. Uh, just stick with us. Like I said, I know it's been a little bit, but you 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 know that when we do finally show up, we're gonna give you some fantastic content. That's what the fan of correspondents do. Um, but before we continue on into this episode, we do want to give you all uh, give a little shout out. The opening that you just heard of uh, that really kind of rousing music was our new opening for the Star Wars EU or EU review um, that we we're going to start using um, by a man by the name of Grushkov. Uh, it's G-R-U-S-H-K-O-V. Uh, you can find his regular account on Twitter, but also you can find him on Spotify, YouTube. There is a link in the description, and we're also going to... I should. I think I've already shared it on Instagram, but if I haven't, then I'm going to make sure that I do. Um, he is a not only a very nice man to talk to, but also is a fantastic composer. Um, he just loves Star Wars and wanted to start making Star Wars music. Uh, and he has done soundtracks for the two, the first two of the main volumes of the High Republic novels. Um, what you heard was the overture to The Rising Storm, which is the second album and second book. And, um, I mean, the reason that I, that I wanted to include him, and Al can attest to this, is, at, le at least in, I think, I think he'll be able to, um, to me, listening to his music alongside, re like, it really fit everything he was trying to convey. I thought he did a really good job about conveying the different kind of elements of each scene and each chapter that he was covering with the music itself. And it really kind of elevated um, Star Wars just in general, because when I was listening to certain, like certain songs that were titled certain things, and I knew that they were based on certain scenes in the book, I was immediately taken there. Um, particularly in the part that we are using for this opening, literally sounds like what you would hear when when like an, an attack by the Nile happens. Um, and, and I'm not giving too many spoilers away for the rising storm. Uh, guess what? The Nile do attack uh, sooner or later in that book. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Right. I know. Um, excuse me. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Uh, we, we did just want to give a, a big shout out to Grishkov. Thank you so much, my friend for letting us use the song uh, and continuing to use the song as well. Um, I might do different songs each month just to kind of, you know, change it up a little bit, but for, but for right now, I really like the overture. I really like the part we use, but as I said, I was getting ahead of myself. I did want to introduce ourselves one more time. If you are new to the fan correspondence or new to the EU or EU review, 
Um, this is a segment that we do where we just talk about different aspects of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, um, be it books, shows, video games, basically anything that isn't one of the main films. Um, for those, we typically do something a little bit different. But uh, today, um, me, Jacob, sorry, the editor-in-chief, um, and the wonderful Red Lanyard, better known as Al, are bringing to you Tales of the Bounty Hunters. Uh, we're going to go into that in just a little bit. But first, Al, how are you doing tonight, man? I am doing just fantastic. Um, I'm ready to talk about some bounty hunters because, man, <laughs> Star Wars loves their bounty hunters. They, they um, do. Star Wars does love their bounty hunters. They do. They really and I love Star Wars. So yeah. it's just a match made in heaven. So, so, so yeah. I'm exactly. doing great, man. How are you, Jacob? I'm doing very well, actually. Yeah, I, I am. I've been... Um, I, I do apologize to you. I know you finished this book like a week and a half ago, maybe. Uh, and I've been, of course, so busy with the move and everything that I have not had a chance to uh, to get caught up as quickly as, as I'd like to. So I do want to apologize to you on that. Um, but, you know. Good. It's all good. Life happens, which. Life does happen. Coincidentally, could be one of the things we talk about in some of these stories about how life happens and what one can consider life. Ooh. Ooh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> On that note, let's move right into it. Um, as, as I said, we are talking about Tales of the Bounty Hunters. If you have not heard of this book before, um, this is currently a Legends book. Um, it is something that, which, uh, if you are new to the terminology, that is means it is something that came out before Disney bought Star Wars in 2012. Um, after they did, they basically everything that wasn't one of the main, um, one of the main films or, and, or Clone Wars and Rebels was basically now considered non-canon, um, or legends, uh, depending on your terminology. And this book, however, um, was one that a lot of people kind of held kind of close to their chest. A lot of people really liked this book. Um, and there are parts that I really liked and we're going to, we're going to get into that, um, but the basic premise of it is that this was the first book that really wanted to focus on the six bounty hunters that you see in Empire Strikes Back when Darth Vader is hiring them to hunt down the Millennium Falcon and, uh, Han Solo and Leia and Chewie and all them. Um, what's interesting, I, and I'm not sure if this was, I, I, I didn't get a chance to look this up. I'm pretty sure these were all stories written for this book. Like it was intended to be a, a, a compilation. There were at times certain stories that would show up in uh, Star Wars Insider, the magazine, um, which still happens today. A lot of the higher public stories uh, start out as in Star Wars Insider. And it's interesting because a lot of these writers also wrote for Star Wars Insider. Um, and so we're going to kind of go into that. I, I do want to talk about a couple things uh, on the different writers. Um, but first, Al, I wanted to ask you, because I, I'm, I'm curious, because we the bounty hunters aren't really characters that you and I have talked a whole lot about, except for Boba Fett um, and the random appearances of Boss that will happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was curious. Um how familiar were you with any of the other bounty hunters besides Boba Fett um, before going into this book? Oh yeah. Um, 
Uh, before going into it, I was not super familiar with hardly any of them. Um, of course, everybody knows Boba Fett. Um, I mean, as you said, um, especially by now, uh, the dude has had his own show. Um, if you don't know him by now. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know him by now, I'm not sure Star Wars is for you. Exactly. Um, um, I... Had known a little bit more about Tangar because um, Tangar had shown up um, a little bit in um, the comics reboot um, Mm -hmm. that I've been catching up on. Um, uh, In fact, he shows up in um, one of the comics that we talked about um, last month on another episode when we reviewed the first... Um, two trade paperbacks of uh, the Jason Aaron run on Star Wars. So if you're interested in that, go check that out. But um, so I know a little bit um, about him as well. Um, Bosk has been just a thorn in my flesh to get biblical with it. Not that I dislike Bosk. Um, I didn't really know a lot about him as a character. Um, I'd honestly say I still don't really know a whole lot about him. Um, now, but we'll get to that in a bit. But um, for everybody listening to this, though, it had been an inside joke where when um, the new Star Wars Battlefront 2 came out, um, I had waited for a bit um, to buy it for anybody who who recalls how much of a trash fire um, the release of that game was. And so I'd, I'd waited a bit to buy it and play it. When I finally did, some of the DLC characters had come out, or or the continued release, I guess, characters had come out. And um, I was really excited to see who it was. I was just like, oh, cool, are we going to get, like, you know, are we going to get, like, Ahsoka? Are we going to get, like, um, um, you know, Captain Rex um, or something like that? Like, any of these, like, really beloved characters we have um, as special hero characters? And we didn't have either of them, but we did have Bosk. Um, and I remember texting the group chat saying, guys, who, who the hell is Bosk? And my wonderful co-host, Jacob, saying, dude, Bosk is the man. <laughs> and our fandom correspondent compatriot and sometimes guest co-host of Star Wars EU or EU, um, Joshua, was just like, dude, you have no idea. And just left it at that. And I was just like, okay, cool. Um, so that was my exposure to him. Um, IG-88, um, I had seen that droid um, design in various games and shows and things like that, but didn't know much about um, the character specifically. And then I had never heard of Horlam and Zuckus, uh before starting this book, um, other than like the split second they're on screen in Empire Strikes Back. Um, so that was kind of my exposure to all of those characters, but, um, but man, I'm glad I read this book because we got some cool characters going on, man. Yeah, no, no, we, we, I, I really, I always did enjoy all six of them to varying degrees. Um, Bosk, I will admit, I always liked, um, specifically because he is utterly ridiculous. Um, he is a giant lizard. That is that is a bounty hunter. Um, he is also arguably the most evil of the six. Um, and um, 
for some reason, he is such a fan favorite that he just shows up constantly in the EU in random books. Um, as you have already found out, reading, uh, like you said, it's Boba Fett Blood Ties, just a random Star Wars Ooh. comic from like the early 2010s, and all of a sudden, Bosk shows up out of nowhere and then doesn't really do anything for the story, then just kind of leaves. Um, doesn't do anything. Yeah. It, I mean, the story could have been like sans those three panels and, <laughs> and it would have exactly. been exactly the same <laughs> it's incredible but, but man people love bosk they, they do i mean because here's the thing al you had mentioned battlefront 2 not only was he in battlefront 2 uh from 2017 he's in battlefront from 2015 as well um uh, however, they do also have Dengar in that one as well. But but yeah, Bosk yeah. Boss came up. May, they made sure Bosk was out before Dengar, though. Like they were, <laughs> they made sure. Like I mean, he's tier one he, character. I mean, he, apparently he is. People you know? think Star Wars. They think Bosk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, he was the one. Him and Bobo were probably the two I knew the most about going into this. Um, IG eighty eight, of course, like like you said, he is very much just a kind of an iconic figure at this point, just his, his, his frame really just who, who, who he is, just kind of seeing him is iconic at this point. Um, so much so that even when you see the IG um, 11 in the first season of the Mandalorian, it still has that call because it's, it's an IG unit still. Um, and so, so yeah, so I, I knew him, but mainly just from that aspect, I didn't know anything about his creation, how he came to be. Um, Dengar, I knew very little about. I knew he was, but, but in fairness, I knew everything you need to know about him that you get from the opening of the story, which is he is from Corellia, just like Han, and he is obsessed with killing Han. Um, I didn't know why or anything like that. You learn, but uh, yeah, I, that's pretty much what I knew about him. And I was the exact, I, I was almost the exact same, in the exact same boat as you were with Forlom and Zuckus. Um, I did not know anything about them. Um, in the recent comics, War of the Bounty Hunters, um, you do find out more about all six of them. Um, but the only other thing that I really learned that I didn't know previously was uh, that Zuckus is what's called a Gand or or, or Gond, maybe. Uh, it's, it's, is it G? I think it's G-H-A-N-D. Um but basically, his species has the ability to have intuition, which means he can see partial futures. Um, that's the only thing I learned. Uh, that's the only thing I knew about him before going into this. Um, that and apparently occasionally Forlom is called for L-O-M. Uh, kind of like an, an AT-AT at at Imperial Walker kind of discussion there. So whatever you want to call him, go right ahead. I have always heard Forlom. I, I've heard Forlom. In the Star Wars video games, I heard Forlom in the Star Wars miniatures years ago. That's what I've always heard. So for the for reference within this podcast, he will be called Forlom. Um, but uh, moving into the stories themselves, um, so we start off. We the the first off the the entire book is edited by Kevin J. Anderson. Kevin J. Anderson is a he's a lesser known sci-fi author. However, if you if you were paying attention to like a lot of the like the sci-fi sections during like the 
late nine, like mid to late nineties, early two thousands, you would see a lot of him because he did do a lot of star Wars stuff. Um, he did do, um, I think some star Trek as well. And he also has different, um, different stories that, that he's done on his own as well. Uh, of course the, the big one I knew him from was the last days of Krypton, which would then go on to be the inspiration for the show Krypton, which we won't talk about. Um, but, um, um, it was kind of interesting to see his name show up. And of course he writes the first story, which is called therefore I am, which is the tale of IG 88. Um, Al, would you like to give a brief synopsis of this story? <laughs> um, I would be happy to, uh, okay. because this, uh, just throwing it out there. This first story was probably my favorite one out of all yeah. of them. Um, but um, real quick, just on Kevin J. Anderson. Um, oh, yes, please. Uh, Kevin J. Anderson um, has published a lot. Um, he has um, he has done a lot of sci-fi stuff. I had actually read some Kevin J. Anderson um, stuff before um, I started my whole um, journey into the Star Wars Expanded Universe uh, because he wrote um, three pretty well-known X-Files books um, as oh, well. Um uh, which was really cool. Um, he's also uh, very well known for um, the trilogy of um, Jedi Academy books um, in the EU as well. They're kind of this equal trilogy to the Thrawn um, trilogy. Uh, those books are actually great. Um, I read those um, right after I finished the Thrawn books. Those, in, um, those the are the where uh, Exar Kun comes back, right? Yes, exactly. Yes, okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's a yeah, that, that is a good storyline. <laughs> um and then um and then he also wrote I was unaware of this until I did a little bit of background research on all of the authors. Um our dude Kevin J. Anderson wrote a ton of the Dune books. Um Yeah, the, yes, I don't I don't know where my head is at. Yes, uh, you were yes. absolutely correct. <laughs> yes, alongside Herbert. Um he wrote like yeah. a a ton of the Dune books. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, dude um, has published a lot. Um, um, and he's great. I've enjoyed everything I've read of his. Um, I haven't read any of the Dune stuff because I'm just hot into Dune um, yet. I could change in the future. But um, he's great. I love Anderson. Um, and so appropriately enough, he wrote my f favorite story um, in this anthology. Um, Therefore, I am... Um, the tale of IG-88, this one felt almost targeted to me because when it comes to sci-fi stuff, I have always been fascinated, um, honestly, both in sci-fi stuff as well as in the real world, um, if we're being honest here, I've always been fascinated by the idea of artificial intelligence and like sentience among like robots and computers and various forms of artificial and virtual intelligence um and that's basically the crux of the ig88 story um is i'm asking a lot of interesting questions um especially in the star wars universe where i feel like droids are such a huge presence in the star wars universe but in some ways are often kind of neglected as well mm -hmm. uh, because they're just kind of a passive thing. They're just kind of like, oh, yeah, there's all kinds of droids 
um, out and about. Um, and there are some that can talk and there are some that can't. And there, there's a droid language that some people are able to understand as well as droids. And but like um, droids have kind of been a thing that I feel like in Star Wars is often kind of taken for granted. Like, yeah, man, it's like um, a sci-fi story. It's a sci-fi world. Like, um, there's robots in it. Like, it's whatever. Um, Anderson kind of kind of puts that passivity um, and kind of turns it on its head because it's just like, hey, IG-88 um, in his story is basically a droid that was designed to be ve- very efficient as an assassin and as a mercenary for the Empire. Uh, that was its um, intended ideology. And what happened is that they were, <laughs> and this is great, they were a little bit too good at their jobs, essentially, the droid designers were, <laughs> with IG-88. Because um, this droid basically has unheard of levels of sentience um, among droids. Um, It's activated. It almost immediately becomes self-aware of itself and its environment and its own goals and being able to rapidly weigh various outcomes with, like, things that it wants and desires. And for me, I feel like this is one of the few times in Star Wars I've ever been confronted with the idea of a droid having a desire to do anything other than like you know not be blown up in in like c3po's case um but um it shows intelligence and it shows um desire and innovation and all kinds of things and it really forces you to wrestle with this idea albeit in a very you know fun kind of star wars story um, it kind of forces you to think about this idea of what artificial intelligence is and what happens when sometimes um, possibly a Star Wars engineer or possibly, you know, a real-life engineer might be a little bit too good at their job and might kind of push the boundaries of what we understand computer-based intelligence to be, you know, and asks questions of just, like, you know, can artificial intelligence be innovative um can it be can it have unique ideas and things like that um all that to say those are kinds of the themes that are being discussed what happens narratively in the story is that ig88 is activated it becomes self-aware gains sentience as a droid um it does what it's best at um it it kills its creators it kind of copies itself into the other versions of the IG-88 droid that have been um, produced. Um, And together, they very boldly ask the question of, you know, um, we are kind of the apex editor here. We have um, the um, efficiency and the drive and the intelligence unmatched by any of these, you know, organic life forms. Uh, Why don't we take power. Why don't we control the galaxy? Um, and so it's kind of a narration of their plans for that and kind of working under the nose of the Empire and and feigning this kind of 
front of of doing their design purpose while still uh, working towards a greater purpose. And basically, it ends up, small spoiler alert if you haven't read the book, um, it ends up that the original IG-88 droid, the one that first kind of became self-aware, is able to upload itself to the second Death Star <laughs> orbiting Endor. Um, and its intention is, oh, this is a Death Star. This is the most powerful force of destruction in the planet. If I become one with this, then, then I become the most powerful force in the planet. Um, and that's kind of its logic. Um, of course, we all know what happens to the second Death Star. But before uh, it kind of reaches its, its demise, you know, the story kind of... Um, ends out very um, shortly before that, actually. But um, we also get a delightful scene, which this could be the reason, this could be the real reason why the first story is my favorite, of IG-88 um, being kind of plugged into and controlling the Death Star, um, just kind of screwing with Emperor Palpatine. Um, just kind of like waiting for Palpatine to go to get on an elevator. And then just like he closes the elevator door and just like keeps the doors closed and just like screws with him. Like he doesn't like, you know, he could do anything he wants to, but he's just like, I'm going to like, this guy sucks. I'm going to like, just going to screw with his day. I'm just going to inconvenience him for a while. But um, yeah, I loved this story. It, it scratched um, a very big itch for me. So, um, so I was all about it. Yeah, so I I cannot tell you how happy I am that you mentioned the um him just randomly screwing with Emperor Palpatine because <laughs> like I was I was so that happens like maybe what what would you say five pages for the end of that story because like oh, that, yeah. that him becoming the second Death Star is kind of the climax of the of the story, um, which I will readily admit. While it is utterly ridiculous, <laughs> the idea of IG-88 just uploaded himself into the second Death Star, um, I loved it so much because it is something that is purely just, like, it is very clearly just, like, that that Star Wars uh, comic book kind of um, aspect of why not, you know? just It's something so strange and maybe even silly but at the same time, it just works in that kind of surrealist kind of aspect. So I, I, I loved it. I, I loved everything about that story, especially the ending. Um, also, that's kind of the one story that currently none of the new canon has really um, has really hurt this one. Like that, by all technical reference, this one could still be canon. <laughs> You know what? I think my viewing of Return of the Jedi would actually improve if in my headcanon, um, just before Palpatine goes to collect Vader and Luke, um, IG-88 is just screwing with his elevator. I think that would actually enhance <laughs> my enjoyment of that movie. <laughs> and I love Return of the Jedi already. Exactly, yeah. It would make it even better. Make it make a good movie great. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah no i um 
I'm also glad that you brought up the the idea of droids and sentience and everything with this because I mean, of course, that like you said, that is really the entire kind of premise of this story. Um, droids have an interesting have an interesting place within the world of Star Wars because so much so that like. I mean, C-3PO and R2-D2 are the first main characters we meet. There is a reason for that. Um, and, and, and A New Hope, excuse me. Um, but there is a reason for that. And it's because that was Lucas's original premise was this idea of these two... These two people who are basically like... I mean, in the in the original story he was based on, on the Kurosawa film that he was based on... They are two people who are basically serfs. They are lesser than than everyone else around them. Um, they're kind of bumbling idiots in the original story. Um, although, if anyone ever calls R two D two a bumbling idiot, then we've we're we're, we're throwing some hands because R two D two is the best. Um, C three PO, there is a case, but R two D two is the best. Um, but the thing is, is that from their very inception into the kind of that the pop culture world droids have always been there and present like you said but they've always kind of been in the background they've never really been kind of the main focus you contrast that with this where the entire point <laughs> the entire point of the story is what if a droid was just like dude we can take over everything no one can stop us we can calculate faster than everyone we we are physically faster than everyone else no one can really stop us um, which is a callback to the greatest film of the series, uh, uh, Attack of the Episode Two, Attack, Attack of the Clones, oh, when um, <laughs> 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 when Obi Wan says, "If droids could think, there'd be none of us here, wouldn't there?" Um, he says this to um, an, the other, the greatest part, the greatest character in the greatest Star Wars film, uh, Dexter Jetster. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, no, go on. <laughs> but but even but even within that even within that aspect though even that that is an interesting thought is there are so many droids throughout the world of Star Wars and most of them do work at, with kind of like a menial task and so so no it was it was definitely an interesting it was definitely a really interesting thought of, you know, what if a droid was basically like, no, nah, we can run everything and we're going to run everything. Um, no, I, I loved everything about this story. Um, and also I'm, I'm really glad you brought up. Um, this is also clearly the, like, I'm not saying the other four stories are bad. This is very clearly the one that is written the best in my opinion. Mm, um, I would agree and, with that. And the more I the more I think about it, I had completely spaced and forgot, you know, that Kevin J. Anderson, you know, the that one sci-fi writer, you know, was also like <laughs> one of the one of the two primary authors of more than half of the Dune series. Because <laughs> uh, after uh, Frank Herbert passes away, the father, uh Ryan, the son, and uh, Kevin Anderson are the ones who continue, who continue the series and everything. But but yeah, I completely spaced and forgot about that. Um, that's like saying that Tolkien wrote a decent little fantasy novel. Um, <laughs> but um, 
but no, this is this is clearly the one that, in my opinion, like I said, is is the best written of the of the five, and and I think a part of that is because he did have the most experience. Um, but I think also, I think he was the one. Him and probably the probably the guy who wrote the um, the four Lamanzuka story, which we are going to get to, obviously. Um, were the ones who thought the most about what do I really want to say with these characters? Um, what do I want to bring to the world of Star Wars with these characters? Um, and, and, and once again, that is not to say that the others are bad by any means. And the others, every, every story that's in this has at least like one moment where I was like, okay, that was kind of cool. You know, like they have at least one moment where I, where I enjoyed the story, um, but this one, just from beginning to end, this one held my attention very, 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 very well. Um, there was never really a point where I was like, I, I'm just trying to get through this just to get to the next one, you know. Um, and in fact, I really kind of wanted more. Um, he, of course, him, you know, doing that ending where he goes into the the second Death Star, it's kind of a kind of a one and done for OIG88, unfortunately. Um, but. Uh, but I was really intrigued to see, you know, more about the because of course, of course, the premise. What what really happens, you know, with his actual plan is that he's trying to build up like this droid rebellion that's going to take over the entire galaxy, and he has like this factory planet working for him. So like, there are thousands and thousands of droids being assembled that already have this mindset of we're going to take everything over so much so that the guy who was previously running the factory plant um gets killed by basically his servant droid um when and once again another one of my favorite uh moments in this and really kind of a darkly um darkly good lord a well no darkly humorous i guess would be the term is that uh, the i don't know if i'm using those words correctly but you guys get what i'm saying um and I'm, I'm gonna stick with that darkly humorous way. <laughs> um, he, <clears throat> this droid starts giving him all of this stuff, and he's like, "Your tea, sir." And, and and the man's like, "Thank you." And he's like, "Your papers, sir." And he's like, "Thank you." And then he goes, "Your death, sir." And he goes, and he <laughs> he he starts to say thank you. And he goes, "Wait, what?" And then the droid shoots him. And once again, like it's technically this little this tiny little. Helper droid is being turned evil, so I couldn't really be laughing, but it did kind of make me laugh. It was kind of funny, um, but uh, but yeah, no, I just I loved everything everything about the story. I uh, yeah, but Al, like like I said, do you do you think does this since we'll we'll kind of do this on a case by case basis? Does this one fit in the grand canon for you? Oh, I mean. I mean, I already said 100%. Not only does it fit into Grand Canyon for me, it enhances my viewing experience of a movie I already liked. <laughs> um, so this is this is an easy one for me because I mean, honestly, and it does it does so much more. Like we've made a couple of jokes of just like you know, it all like hover droids becoming assassins and like um, an IG-88 just like screwing with Emperor Palpatine. Um, but like it really does, as you talked about before, it really forces 
um, viewers and readers to really consider, you know, the real role and potential of an entire, I'm going to use the word race for droids because that's essentially what they are um, mm. in the grand scheme of things. Um, this race of characters who who have always been kind of taken for granted. And I think that makes the, the world of Star Wars much more interesting and, and aging that way because it forces us to kind of think kind of critically and kind of creatively about what these kinds of stories could mean in, in like the grander scheme of the world. Um, but um, no, I'm com I am completely down for Therefore I Am, the tale of IG-88 um, being a part of the grand canon of Star Wars. I am, I am here for that, 100%. Uh, completely agree. Yes, absolutely. And and you, I, I did want to bring up something something else, uh, something that I forgot to mention. Every one of these stories hinges on the scene from Empire Strikes Back, where they where the bounty hunters are introduced. Um, I'm going to say <laughs> in a really interesting way because every because they're they show up in different times. Like there are certain stories that that's literally how it starts. There are certain stories where. That happens mm -hmm. closer to the end. Um, with this one, it's like right in the middle. Um, because it's like IG-88 is created. Presumably, like, timeline-wise, I'm, I'm going to say, like, a few months before Empire. That's kind of that's what I would say. Mm, uh, yeah. Just from, just from, because he's, because they are, the four of them are created. And they... Uh, recreate the scene for Spider-Man 2 where Doc Ock wakes up. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and um, then the, is he a moth or is he a, or is he a governor? Is he a governor? Is he, is he a moth? The, the guy who's looking for, the guy who ordered the creation of them. The one thing I remember is that he had apparently yeah. a very large nose. I think he's just an admiral. I, don't think, okay. I think he's trying. I think he's trying to get to Moth. That's okay. what he's hoping the creation of the droids will do. Okay, is that what um, they Moth? Yeah, because his whole thing is that he's creating them to like assassinate, you know, like General Riken or Maydeen or Mon Mothma or Baylor or right. well, no, not Baylor Gana at that point. But you, you got to like like the higher ups. It'll in, be eight on the draw on that last one. Like on the Baylor Gana, <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> <laughs> these droids took a long time to, to, to make like it's it's been a minute um <laughs> um but but yes like he wants them to assassinate like the higher-ups in the rebellion and then you know raise his status the, but like i said the one thing i remember about him throughout the entirety of the story is that he has apparently a very very large nose that he wants to get uh facial reconstruction on um, and to a point where, like, he wants this reconstruction surgery so badly. Like, to like, the point where he starts to ask Darth Vader about it <laughs> at one point. That is crazy to me. <laughs> 
like I think I feel like like young Kevin J. Anderson had like asked a girl to like to like a an eighth grade dance and like she, she rejected him because she said his nose was too big and it became this like <laughs> repressed insecurity that just manifested in the short story that he wrote <laughs> because this is like that is the guy's personality is that he wants his nose to be smaller than it's one true. of his to the point that he requests it from one of the more evil people in the galaxy <laughs> i you know in in hindsight What's even funnier is like there there's a certain in a lot of the like 90s and 2000s like galactic civil war storylines there is a certain like mentality that Vader isn't really well known throughout the empire he's kind of like spoken about in like hush rooms kind of thing so much so that a lot of people um well, the uh, there's a story in from a certain point of view, which is a grouping of short stories, which we, I'm I'm fairly certain we're going to be doing both of those next year, but that's that's for another that's discussion for another time. Um, but there's a story where they're talking about seeing about some of the troops on the Tana Four, the very first ship you see in A New Hope, seeing Darth Vader come through that door the first time, and the way that the narrator is describing it is. Um, he had heard tales of, I think, I think the direct quote is he had, I had heard tales of this monster, but they all paled in comparison to seeing him up close. Um, and that's, so add that mentality <laughs> to this man who is an admiral <laughs> and is so, so afflicted by this, by this, I'm going to say excessively large nose, apparently. That he is willing to just risk it all to discuss it with, once again, the man who is the monster who pales in comparison to the stories. I mean, it's also just like a socially conscious thing as well, because like, like, I don't know, imagine walking up to a guy who, who lost all of his limbs and is living in essentially an iron lung and saying, man, I really wish my nose was smaller. Can you pull some strings? <laughs> oh, oh, shit, that was funny. It's <laughs> incredible. Just uh, the gall. In fairness, the man, he might not know that. He might not know that he lost all his limbs. But all the same, I see your point. <laughs> In fact, I kind of wish the Darth Vader had just turned, just been like, oh yeah? Well, how do you like having all four of your limbs? <laughs> oh, boy. Because we're just simultaneously a threat and a genuine question at that point. <laughs> oh, man. Um, moving on. Do you have anything to... We need to move on. Yes, yeah, exactly. Do you have anything to add uh, uh, that you haven't said of the IG-88 story before we move on to Dengar? Um, I don't think so. Uh, This story is great. Everyone should read it. It's super fun. Yes, absolutely. Um, Moving on to... um, Let me see. Is it called... I think it's called Payback. 
Payback. Is, yes, yeah, because that is his. That is the name he's going by at the time. Yeah, uh, the story's Payback. called Payback because that's what he's called. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Payback's <laughs> The Tale of Dengar. Um, so this one is by Dave Wolverton. Um, Dave Wolverton was a writer of a few different Star Wars books in the kind of mid-90s to like early 2000s. Um, he wrote the first of the Jedi Apprentice series, which was the storyline that covered and or Obi Wan and Qui Gon leading up to Phantom Menace. Um, which the reason I'm bringing those up is because those are books that were very, very close and near and dear to my heart um, because I grew up reading all of those. Um, Jude Watts, he only wrote the first one. Jude Watson took over after him, um, but. Still, like, I, I will never forget getting that book the first time. That was one of the first, like, books that I really set down and read cover to cover, basically. Um, but with this story, he is talking all about Dengar, who is the bandaged, uh, bandaged up man uh, and from Empire Strikes Back. Um, and I did not know a whole lot about Dengar leading up to this. Um, the basic premise is that he, like I had already said earlier, he is a man from Corellia, um, and he is obsessed with killing Han Solo. You come to find out throughout the storyline. Um, excuse me. When I say obsessed with killing Han Solo, I mean so much so that he starts to imagine um, that every person he hunts and assassinates is Han Solo. Um, mm-hmm. Like, he starts to attempt to, like, see them like in the vest with the hair, um, which leads to a very funny moment where he tries to do that with Jabba the Hutt and he just can't bring himself to do it. Um, <laughs> which I really like actually. Um, but no, he, um, you also come to find out that he was, there was a point where he was hurt doing a swoop bike race, um, with, with Han and, because of his injuries in that, he is basically taken by the Imper- by Imperials and has all, like, basically has his mind messed with the where certain aspects of his emotions are just gone completely. Um, so he can't feel s- multiple different emotions. Um, so let's see, he can't feel, he can't feel joy. He can't feel pain, if I remember, if I remember correctly, like actual physical pain. I don't think he can. Um he can't feel fear. Um, the only things that I know that he can feel, because the two primary things I remember can, they can feel in this are hope and loneliness, which go into the entire premise of the story, really. Um, yes. And there's also yeah. a third one as well. What, 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 what is the third one? What is the third one? Help me out. Uh, rage. Rage. Yes, that's it. Yes, yes. So, okay, those are the three emotions that we know he can feel. He's basically uh, a Red Lantern, which is pretty cool. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> that's all right. Now I'm curious, real quick, just because you brought this up. Okay, Dengar's a Red Lantern, or a Red Lantern. Good lord, Dengar's a Red Lantern. <laughs> Dengar's me. <laughs> <laughs> Dengar's a Red Lantern. What is IG88? Um. Ooh. Um. Good question. Let's do. Feel, feel free to think ahead because we're going to do this with all with all six now. <laughs> oh boy! Oh oh, this is a fun improv game. Um, yeah, let's have AG. Let's have IG eighty eight. Be a Black Lantern. He's a black. Okay, that 
Man, good pick. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's going to be a fun one for anyone where their Green Lantern love and their Star Wars love crosses over. To anyone else, we just sound like we're insane over the last minute and a half. I, I feel like those Venn diagrams are pretty close to each other. They are. It's crazy, like, space fantasy shit. Like, I, I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of fans of both. Um... Moving on. Um, yes, the story with Dengar. Excuse me. Um, so you can only feel certain emotions. Um, and what basically ends up happening is he goes on this one hunt where he is taking down this guy that has basically taken over this planet for the Empire. And because this planet is is a very peaceful planet, similar to like Alderaan or something like that, they don't. They don't use weapons. They're mainly just uh, culturally sound. Um, they do. They. I know that their primary imports are like food and like dancers. Um, I know that's a big thing for them. Um, forgive me. I'm giving a very brief synopsis. I know I'm skipping a lot. <laughs> it's all good. But um, while he is on this, while he is dealing with this this horrible admiral or moth or whatever he is. Um, he finds this young girl. Well, not 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 young, a, a young woman. We'll say that um, because otherwise it sounds creepy. Um, <laughs> he finds a young woman um, who is basically about to be sent into servitude, um, and then for is it for Jabba? No, no, I'm thinking of something different. Excuse me, excuse me. Um, she's going to be sent into servitude. Um, as a as a dancer and Dengar basically he saves her he doesn't really understand why he saves her which I think is a really interesting way to way to do this um this is probably my second favorite of the stories honestly uh, and in my opinion the second best written um due to how they handle certain aspects of Dengar um he doesn't really understand why he saves her but he does and <clears throat> when he is taking her to this new planet, um, there is a point where she uses this. Okay, I'm gonna look it up. Sorry, I I read this one. I read this one a while ago. Um, she uses something. It's like a. I got the feeling. It's not described in particularly big detail, but I got the feeling that it's kind of like a blue people avatar type yeah connection thing where she kind of plugs something into the cybernetic parts that uh, the empire installed in him and it allows her to kind of connect with him in like a spiritual-esque way if that makes mm -hmm. sense yeah because because like there's a point where like not only do they connect more, but he can he can feel a lot of the things that she feels. Um, he can mm -hmm. see parts of th of things that she sees um, if they are close enough together, um, mm -hmm. which does come into play in the story. Um, there is a point where like she feels fear. I think of him at one point and he is literally knocked back by it. Like he literally falls back in his chair um, and like starts crying. 
because he and he doesn't really understand why because he has had sadness removed um and he doesn't really understand the emotions that he's feeling mm-hmm. and once again it's written really well and it kind of led me to really kind of feel for Dengar because he is someone that emotions were literally stripped from him they were taken from him and that's something that you don't hear a lot about like in in in, in a physical aspect like like you you see these kinds of you know i mean of course in, in this modern in this kind of modern day setting you know we've seen so many different stories of characters where they were changed by different things that happened to them. Um, off, off the top of my head, you know, um, the Hound from Game of Thrones, Walter White and Breaking Bad. Um, these are characters that we watched them change over the course of seasons uh, for better or worse um, because of things that were happening to them. You contrast that with Dengar, who literally just one day basically woke up and was being operated on and then all of a sudden couldn't feel half of his emotions. Um, which is really sad and interesting to me. Um, but skipping ahead, um, Dengar gets contracted to, um, he gets contracted to hunt down Han Solo along with the rest of the bounty hunters. And while he is hunting Han, there is a point, and and his is interesting because when I say hunting Han, I mean like he is literally constantly behind them. He is constantly behind Boba Fett, basically, um, to the point where Boba Fett even um, wait. No, I'm thinking of IG-88 because IG-88 is the one who gets blown up in Cloud City. But Dengar also goes to Cloud City. Apparently, there were a lot of the bounty hunters on Cloud City at one point. <laughs> um, <laughs> it happens. It does happen. Um, when he goes to Jabba's palace. After, after Boba Fett has taken Han back, which is also something that was kind of interesting to me because I didn't, I didn't think they would go past uh, Empire. I thought they would keep, I thought they would kind of keep with that era, and then all of a sudden we we've gone a year later up to uh, Return of the Jedi and and, and certain stories, um, with this one included. When he goes to Jabba's palace, he sees the girl that or the young woman that he met earlier. Uh, Monavu is her name. Mm-hmm. And basically, she is dancing and is a slave for Java now, and he is going to try and save her. Once again, doesn't really understand why. He just kind of feels this pull to be with her. And it's during this point where he realizes that she is also falling in love with him. And because of their the connection that's in a cybernetics, he starts to feel and understand that. And once again, really kind of a beautiful scene. He has no idea how to accept that. In his mind, he is a monster that cannot be loved. And he has no idea how to accept that. Um, Really, really kind of an interesting kind of take on that. Um, And it has a fantastic twist ending, (laughs) which I will let Al go to. um, Because, Al, I'm curious, what were your thoughts on this this story overall? of of payback the tale of dengar yeah um i thought it was interesting um it was an interesting one i enjoyed it um so um yeah so basically we um we it's a like return a return of the jedi um type timeline um there and um um, the things happen at Jabba's palace that happen in Return of the Jedi, as I'm sure everybody 
um, is able to recall. Um, if you don't, then go ahead and rewatch Return of the Jedi. That's a great movie. Um, but essentially, um, Tengar gets to a point where um, he has Honoru, um, and he's pretty much ready to kind of. who just kind of um, be with her and kind of turn his back on on this life. Um, you know, kind of a classic kind of trope there. Um, as everyone recalls, um, things don't go very well for one of the other major players of this story uh, by the time we get to about halfway point of Return of the Jedi. Um, because Boba Fett who they've had kind of this interesting hack and forth with each other up to this point. Um, and even, even to the point where Boba Fett, like, <laughs> like almost kind of uses the force to figure out what Dengar is planning. Um, <laughs> that's kind of how it feels. Um, it kind of, rem- it honestly kind of reminded me of how Thrawn is in the original Thrawn trilogy. Because there are times where um, Thrawn just 100% reads what the Rebels are about to do, um, or the New Republic at that point is about to do, and you're just like, what the, this guy has to be using the Force to figure these things out. (laughs) Um, Boba Fett kind of pulls one of those, because they both show up at Jabba's palace, Um, Dengar is just kind of like, hey Jabba, is it cool if like, I pulled a couple guard shifts for you, essentially, um, because he knows Honor is there. Um, and Boba Fett is just like, that bastard is planning to kill Jabba. <laughs> like, a pro pro to nothing. Like, <laughs> like, completely unprompted, just like eats Dengar's lunch. And it's just like, this guy's trying to kill Boba. Um, but anyway, um, Tengar is left in the sands. Um, um, it's called, um, shoot, I believe it's called the Teeth of... Tatooine. Is it, it's called the Teeth of Tatooine? Okay. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure if it was like a specific region of Tatooine or not. But um, yes, he's left to the Teeth of Tatooine, uh, which is basically a horrific sandstorm in the desert where the sand and glass of the desert is being whipped around with such ferocity um, that Tengar's like skin is being like charred and torn off essentially. Um, Just a horrible way to die. Um, And so he's left there for um, Intended probably treachery of Jabba, um, <laughs> and um, due to the <laughs> due to, due to the um, essence of Boba Fett, and um, and he is saved by Honor himself, herself. I'm sorry, and um, and so the gist of the story, where the real twist comes in, that Jacob, I believe, is referring to get to the end of this story and Dengar and Monaru are just like, you know, yeah, let's, let's like, 
let's just leave this life behind us. Let's get hitched. Let's have, you know, five hybrid alien babies in our house. Let's do all that good stuff. Um, and who does Dengar find but the stripped, broken body of Boba Fett after Boba Fett breaks out of the Sarlacc? Um, and so Dengar shows him him kindness that um, presumably he's kind of learned from his prolonged connection with Bonnaroo. Um, and and they nurse him back to health, and Boba Fett is just like, wow, thank you very much. I guess, like, we don't have to kill each other. And, and Dengar is just kind of like, well, why don't you be my best man at my wedding? Which, to me, kind of felt like a jump. Um, <laughs> kind of felt like, you know, just kind of a generous hop there in the relationship bar. But, um, you know, that's fine. He was in love. It's whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, um... But yeah, it was just kind of like, um, and that's and that's the tale of Dengar. And you know, it's fun. Um, I wasn't as into this one as I was IG88's um, story, um, or or um, one of the other ones that we'll talk about here in a bit. But um, um, I enjoyed it. I thought um, I thought one of the most interesting parts of Dengar's story is that. Um, the way Dengar kind of ends up on Darth Vader's artist warrior um, is kind of by happenstance because Dengar actually went to Hoth independently mm. trying to find Han Solo uh, because it's a very personal thing for him. And I think that kind of adds a distinction to Dengar in this group of stories about these characters because that really feels like until like the very end of the book it really feels like the only time that the hunt um that's kind of um talked about and reference with the capital h throughout these stories the hunt of the bounty hunters um this kind of feels unique because it feels like this is the one that is most personal for a group of characters who this is their profession, this is their job, this is how they get by in the galaxy. Um, and so I think that went a long way towards kind of setting him apart um, amongst these characters. And I thought that was really cool and interesting for sure. But um, yeah, um, I thought it was great. It was good. Yeah, his... <clears throat> the emotion behind, like, why... <laughs> uh, pun intended... The emotion behind, like, why he is wanting to hunt down Han is really what separates him from everyone else. Because, like, when it comes to the kind of hunting aspects, he's kind of similar to Boba Fett in that sense. While the other the other three stories are very, very different about how they go about hunting the, the Falcon and Han Solo and everything. Um, which I thought was really interesting. We'll get more into that uh, in, in the next story. But, um, but I really just, I, I don't know. This is probably my second favorite story in the entire book, honestly. Uh, I really, really like this one. And I think it's because it took me by surprise because I didn't really know a whole lot about Dengar. Um, and I think that's why I liked it so much. Um, this, I, I, I don't know. It's just, it was a, like, like, like you said, it, it is a, it's a bit of a stretch for him and, and Boba to have that, um, <laughs> that kind of, you know, <laughs> that kind of like 
moment, I guess, of brotherhood at the end there. Uh, everything's after... cool, man. Yeah, exactly. I mean, after I don't even, I don't even, I don't even, I don't even recall you like <laughs> tying me down into a into a blender of sand and glass to die. <laughs> <laughs> Feels so long ago. Feels so long ago, like yesterday. <laughs> oh man. Um. But no, I just I really like that. And I, I did like that little twist at the end. I was like, that was a weird moment, but I like it. It's it's fun. Um But but yeah. Um I don't really have a whole lot more to say about the story, honestly. I just I just I, it's it's just a fun I just enjoyed the story. Um I did really like the way that he can only feel certain emotions whenever he's connect whenever he's near Monaru. Um and so that's kind of what leads him to feeling those emotions for her in a lot of ways. And I, I thought their connection was really, was really, it, it's just, it's different. And I, I think that's why I liked it so much just because it was so different and it did, it kind of stood out for me. Um, is this in your grand canon now? Um, why not? I mean, yeah, it this is, is the first one that starts to contradict because it does, this does contradict what we have seen in book of Boba Fett um, with the Sarlacc. Right. Uh, sure. Sure. Um, and yeah, um, I think that's fine. Um, I do. I mean, I kind of loved um, the follow-up story to the Sarlacc that Oba got in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess in that way, it kind of disqualifies it. But like, I think it does. It adds a lot of depth to who Dengar is, who otherwise was, uh, would just kind of be like, like, hey, like, I'm a bounty hunter, and I'm here to join this hunt, you know? Um, now, f- full disclosure for everybody, um, I'm not completely caught up on the comics, so, like, anything with any of these characters that comes up in, like, the War of the Bounty Hunters um, event or anything like that, I am not um, informed on. Um, I'm heading there, um, but, you know, it's just... A lot of comics to read, but um, <laughs> it's a lot of comics. Um, but um, yeah, I do like what the story did for Dengar again. I think it kind of sets him apart from a lot of the other hunters. Um, but like, yeah, that's kind of a point of tension here because I'd be fine with this story being part of the canon, removed from the ending with Oba Fett. Because then the two can kind of coexist with what we have right now. Um, But for you, Jacob, who has to answer this question next, that's, um, as you said, that's a a very, a very fun, cool part of the story for you. So how about you? Is this a, um, is this something that you want to embrace in your, in your head canon of events? As, as much fun as it is, and as much as I do enjoy it, I actually agree with you uh, 100%. Um, because to me, the although the little ending is fun, it does come completely out of left field. <laughs> um, um, but also, to me, the, the storyline between the, the, the star of the story is him and Monaru, you know, and their connection. And mm-hmm. so... As long as that was intact, yes, I would put the I would put it in the grand canon. Um, but I but I agree with you because the the storyline in Book of Boba Fett where he is you know 
rescued, uh, air quotes, by the Tusken Raiders. And then, you know, everything that follows in that storyline, I adore. In fact, it's, pro- it's yeah, no, it is. It's my favorite part of that series. Um, and so I, I would have to, so I'd have to say that that part I would need, I need the Book of Boba Fett storyline to to continue um so that so parts of it i put in the grand canon yes but then other parts like i would have to say unfortunately not um but it is really really good um i agree with you on him being a red lantern um and i I, will we'll stick with that um for sure yeah so there you go everybody it is in our green canon up to like the last three pages of the story three pages basically yeah (laughs) um but it is really good, and it's worth it's worth reading. Um, if you have not checked out the story, it is it's written very well and it is worth reading. Um, but moving on, <laughs> I think oddly enough, probably both of our least favorite story of the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we have the prize pelt, the tale of Bosk. The prize um, pelt. Prize pelt. Al, why don't you go ahead and give us a little a short little synopsis of it uh, of that one. Absolutely. So, um, so this one is written um, by Kathy Tears Tires. I, I, I'm I'm gonna go with Tires because okay. it's T Y. I'll go with Tires as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, everyone. I tried to look up the right way to say it, but there isn't um, a pronunciation guide on Wikipedia. So, uh, let's go with Tires. Um, Kathy Tires, this is written by her. Um, if that pricks anybody's ears as far as Star Wars Expanded Universe stuff goes, uh, Kathy Tires also wrote uh, The Truce of Bakura, which is um, the Star Wars Legends book that timeline-wise takes place like right after Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, she wrote that as well. She's written a few short stories for Star Wars um as well um so so yeah um she is is well versed in some star wars stuff for sure um kathy tires wrote a book about bosk on the bounty hunter the trandoshan bond the trandoshan bounty hunter excuse me everybody um who little bit of background lore that will be kind of instrumental in understanding the story is that um, Trandoshans and Wookiees um, aren't the best of friends. Um, it's kind of it's kind of some bad intergenerational blood there between them. Um, so that uh, very much <laughs> so that very, <laughs> yeah, to say the least, it's kind of some bad blood <laughs> between them. Um, so that kind of plays into the context of the story. Because Bosk is very much eager to hunt Chewbacca, right? So this kind of turns it around a little bit, kind of gives some distinguishment to Boss, uh, to Bosk amongst the other bounty hunters, in that his primary target really um, is is more Chewbacca than Hans. Oh, um, that's kind of where the prize pelt idea comes from, because he hunts Wookies. Um, it takes it takes their pelts because Bosk is a fucking psychopath. I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It'd be like it'd be like if Boba Fett was just like, oh sure, 
sure, Vader. I'll I'll hunt Han Solo for you as long as I can have his skin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of paints that character in a different light, now, doesn't it? <laughs> so we have Bosk being very excited to hunt Chewbacca for Darth Vader, and um, and so which again can't reiterate this enough. For the privilege of, of skidding a sentient person, um, Bosk just, just just would have done this for free. Um, <laughs> but Bosk teams up with a couple characters, um, a human named Tinian, and her bookie companion, which their relationship will be expanded on a little bit more by Jacob here in a bit. Chen, I think his full name is Chen Pelik. Lombek. You were mixing the L and the B. Gotcha. Okay. So he begrudgingly teams up with them because they claim to have insider info on where Han and who we have gone and where they are going to be. Um, unbeknownst to Bosk, um, Chen and Tinian are actually rebel operatives um, who are trying to use this opportunity um, to um, take Bosk to basically a a colonial prison planet that the Empire is kind of in charge of. Um, to free a bunch of um, prisoners of war. Um, so they have this albeit somewhat convoluted plan to do that with Bosk. Um, but, um, I was going to say it if you weren't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's not, you know, Occam's razor isn't exactly applied to this plan, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> they have this plan. Um, Bosk has his plan, which Bosk's plan is to, after they track down Han Solo and Chewbacca, is to just go ahead and kill Tinian and Chen anyway. Um, so they're both kind of playing each other, you know, kind of have a a heist-esque film kind of vibe going here. Except, you know, instead of diamonds, it's um, the fur and skin of sentient species. Uh, <laughs> so... So, um, so they go on their way and introduced in this story, forget, I want y'all to forget Tinian, to forget Chen, to forget Bosk, to mm. forget anything else going on in this story, mm -hmm. right? Because the real treasure of the prized pelt, the tale of Bosk, is this little droid. This book is great for questions about what droids are. Is this little droid AI used by Tinian and Chen named Flirt, um, as in as in to flirt with someone. Flirt. Um, flirt is a droid AI that gradually begins to take over Bosk's ship. Um, Bosk is very proud of his ship. His, his ship is the real deal, has a bunch of security protocols, very well armed, whole nine yards. Um, let me tell you all, Okay. Is everybody listening? The introduction of Flirt into this story 
is the most adult-themed material I've ever seen in Star Wars. Um, <laughs> Flirt is a horny AI. <laughs> Appropriately named, as you all see. Um, and there's no other way to say it. Flirt really wants to get boned by the AI in Bosk's ship. Um, and and God bless her, she eventually does. It's great. I'm happy for those kids. Um, so while all this is happening, I love this so much. I, I think I really do. I, I think Kathy Tears is. I think she's a great writer. I really do. I've enjoyed everything else that she's written uh, that I've read. Um, I think she's a great writer. I think partway through, Kathy Tires started to realize that this story is really convoluted if you start thinking about it too hard. And so to distract readers from that fact, she was just like, what if we had like R2-D2 but could talk and just really wanted to bang? <laughs> because that becomes that becomes the story. Like, that becomes the only thing you're cognizant of while reading the short story. Um, we haven't seen Boss for six pages, but I know, know a dude. lot about flirts. It's, yeah, th this is not a Bosk story, okay? This is, this is like the, the prized robo-junk, a flirt story, okay? That's what, <laughs> that's what the short story becomes. And props to Kathy Tires because I think she was kind of on a deadline and she was just like, I don't have time to redraft this. We're just going to make a really horny droid character and people are just going to have to pay attention to it. But I'll leave the rest of it for you, Jacob, because I want to see how, how you f how you follow up with the other half of the story. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. You, you want me to, you want me to talk about that one thing and I'm going to, um, but follow, but continue the synopsis. Okay, so yes, flirt <laughs> is um, the way she hacks. Okay, the way she hacks different systems is she seduces them. Okay, mm -hmm. that is that is her thing. It makes literally every scene where R two D two is hacking into something take on a completely different uh, connotation. <laughs> um. Particularly when he when he does it in Empire Strikes Back and it shocks him, um, but you know, <laughs> yeah. anyway, he's that's why you always have a safe word when you have <laughs> exactly, man. <laughs> um, but but taking putting that aside for a moment, um, I did also love that, and, and I just now realized this: the ship that she is trying to um, to seduce. Is called it is called the Bloodhound or just the Hound, yes. um, or is it like it's like Bloodhound's Fang or something like that, or, or is that uh, that's an Elder Ring thing actually? Excuse me, um, <laughs> I'm mixing my fandoms, um, <laughs> but hang on, there there was a point there was something I wanted to point out because the ship's class, like like what the ship actually is. Oh come on, hang on. It's, it's right here. No, it is. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yes, I, I'm searching for it as well. Exactly. I can't remember what. Yeah. Oh man, 
because I, I, yep, that's it. Yep, okay. It is a YV666 light freighter. <laughs> Which just, once again, like, this is probably my least favorite of the stories, but the more I think about it, there are there are certain moments of this just made me laugh out loud, and that was one of them. Um, I I love that. I love that Kathy Tires was like, you know what? He's gonna have the Satan number for his uh, for his ship. <laughs> like that's just that's just great. Which of course I mean, that is immediately followed with like it's modified for Wookiee hunting, which means you know he's going to hunt a Wookiee and skin it. Um, like in the back, basically, effectively in the back seat of a car. Um, so, so yeah. So, but yes, the YV six six six, uh, the Bloodhound. Um, I just thought that was funny. But, um, but yes, it is a very Tinian and Ken Lumbeck have this very convoluted, um, very very convoluted plan, where effectively their goal. Because Al mentions they are prisoners of war, but also, but what they really, what the primary thing is, is that they are all enslaved Wookies. Um, yes. Canonically, and th- this is to, this is still this is still in the new canon too, and Legends as well. Um, when Revenge of the, uh, and Revenge of the Sith, really, when you start to think about it, kind of leans into it. Um, so Revenge of the Sith happens. Okay. Um, only the invading army of the Republic never leave. Effectively, what happens is they have begun plans for the Death Star, and they're like, well, how are we going to power the weapon? Well, the Rocher trees on Kashyyyk are one of the richest supplies for um, kyber crystals, which power lightsabers, powers the bowcasters of the Wookiees, mm-hmm. and all their weaponry. But in reference to this story, it also powers the Death Star's laser. Okay, so <clears throat> so basically, they start. Uh, it's 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 a the Wookies are terribly tragic people, and it's and I really want an actual story about them, like like going through the whole thing because it's always mentioned like in the backs of other stories like this. Right. Um, basically, what ends up happening is the Wookiees are then forced into slave labor. Um, the worst ones are the ones that are on Kashyyyk because they are literally forced into slave labor as they are cutting down the trees that are basically near near sacred to them, pretty much. Um, like, that's that's their big things. They are very, they are very, like, they are occasionally industrial. Like, they still have, like, ships, and they still do stuff with... Um, uh, with electronics, but it's always mixed in with the with the idea of life and the trees and 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 the world itself of Kashyyyk. Um and parts of Kashyyyk basically become a um basically a slave yard, pretty much, where they are chop having to chop down these trees, get the Kyber crystals and so on and so forth. Um this is actually shown in Jedi Fallen Order a little bit, um, the video game. But following that <laughs> And what they always, um, what they focused on is that the neighboring planet of Trandosha nearby has always been at war with the Wookiees because they are all about hunting, um, hunting, hunting different creatures and skinning them for what they call the scorekeeper. It is basically like their version of a deity. Mm -hmm. Um, but imagine a deity that literally only cares about pelts. 
only cares about things that you can skin. Okay. So the Trandoshans, that is kind of their primary thing. Like they are all hunters. And it was a Trandoshan that actually was the, they align with the empire very, very quickly. And they are the ones who start talking about like, Hey, what you should do is put all the Wookiees to work. And then you should also um, let us hunt them in certain areas. So there are certain Wookiees that are literally put into like these pits that are basically hunting pits for Trandoshans. Um, all of this <laughs> is the reason that there is a scene in the third episode of Book of Boba Fett where uh, Black Kersantan shows up at the bar and then is like, you know what? I'm going to go rip that Trandoshan's arm off <laughs> after he starts drinking for a bit. Um, and me and Josh, while we were watching, of course, we knew the, the, the history of it. And so I really liked that scene. I also like that they don't give you any kind of indication as to why that <laughs> happens. It's literally just, Kersantan was like, that guy doesn't deserve an arm. And then he just rolls with it, which, fair, you know? Um, but, but it was kind of a fun thing for people who did know. But I want that those stories. I want them to go into stuff like this. The problem is, is that this story doesn't go far enough for me um, in that aspect. Because... So the whole thing is that they're going to this neighboring system that has these Wookiee prisoners of war, slave labor, slave laborers. It doesn't really expound on what they are actually doing there. All you know is that the bunch of Wookiees are imprisoned. Okay. Um, and Bosk is basically like, well, sweet. I'll, I'll get, I'll take all those guys out and then get Chewbacca. Um, because supposedly the Millennium Falcon is going to show up at this place. Um, and and then he's going to be able to take down uh, Han and Chewbacca and everything, and then so on and so forth, and then proceed to saying, Darth Vader, could I have that one prisoner uh, so I can skin him, please? Um, <laughs> once again, something else that is odd in hindsight, that is weirder in hindsight when I start to think about it. Um, but what ends up happening is uh, Tinian and Kinlombeck, and I, once again, I am skipping like 20 pages of how they're going to go about doing this long and short of it is that they effectively get Bosk trapped on his own ship. They save all the Wookiees. Um, and then Bosk is given to this Imperial Admiral. And if I remember correctly, his, there's a random woman. I don't know if it's a mistress. I don't know if, if it's like a governor's wife or something. All I know is that she wants a a like a lizard um, skin dress. And so yes. the whole point is that she is going to attempt to or have someone skin boss. I don't think she's going to do it herself, um, but she is going to have boss skinned and made into a dress. Um, the story ends with boss digging out um, and then effectively ends with uh, Ken Lombeck. Um, saying I like my pelt where it is and then like winking at the camera basically um <laughs> that's 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 literally how I read that last like paragraph um all's well that ends well um, all's well that is well you know it's a it's a weird it's a weird story dude it, it is a Jamal weird story Beck just gradually turns into Santa Claus exactly <laughs> <laughs> um it is a weird story however I know that if I don't mention this, Al's going to be upset with me and he's going to do it himself. And I have 
literally since reading the story, because I did not know this was in here, but since reading the story, I've tried to figure out how to carefully explain one of the biggest issues with this story on a podcast. So here we go. Okay. <laughs> Al, I know you've been waiting for this. So yeah, I'm so ready. <laughs> so there is a point very early on, and then multiple points after it. <laughs> she doesn't oh, sorry, alarm. Um, she does not stop saying this word. So <laughs> there's a point where Tinian calls Kinlombek um by a name that is affectionate, a term that is affectionate, and a term that means clan uncle in uh, Shriwook, which is the um, the Wookiee language, okay? When the word is translated into basic, or what we would call English, um, <laughs> it is spelled... Hang on. <laughs> Let me just double-check the spelling. Because it is early. I know I know exactly. Yep, there we go. Alright, it is spelled N-G apostrophe R-H-R. One more time, and I'm going to let you figure that one out for yourself, and I'm not going to say the word myself. N-G apostrophe R-H-R. Now, you might be thinking, okay, she says that once, and then we never look back again. No, she says it multiple times in this story. Um, and I, I, I looked this word up. The only other time it has ever been used in a Star Wars story um, was in another Kathy Tyre story that was in Star Wars Insider. Insider, of course it is. Um, she she ran with this concept apparently, um, of a clan uncle. Which once again, if someone was doing a story about the Wookies and like their like their clans and tribes on Kashyyyk and was going, like, into their whole storyline and their, like, connection with the Force themselves, all of that would be really, really cool. The problem is, is that I do not think this this word would be anywhere in it. Um, my, what my thought was, is, is that this word does not actually sound that way. What I think he is going for is the, the Vietnamese surname Nguyen, is actually spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. Right. I think she is going for what effectively translates into a Uyghur, very similar to the, uh, or sounding very similar to the um, the nation of people um, in Central and Eastern Asia. I, even if that is her intention... <laughs> I am amazed. This was edited by Kevin J. Anderson. I'm amazed it got past both Kathy and Kevin and presumably at least like two or three other people before it got to print. Um, like I just, I, I, I don't understand. It's great. How this one got through there. Is it, is it great? It's great. Um, I, because after I saw that, that word, in the book, because again, it comes up like pretty quick. It does, um, yeah. After I saw that word in the book, I couldn't help but imagine that, like, <laughs> Tinian having a flashback to when she first called him that, and Chalambek, like, 
um, handing her a piece of paper that says, like, you can say it five times. (laughs) 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 I I couldn't think of anything else. Oh my gosh! I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything else the rest of the time I, I read that story. Oh goodness! Um, oh man! Oh, also I forgot to mention this. Um, flirt at the end of this uh, story finally seduces the hound, uh, the ship, not not the hound from. Uh, <laughs> Game of Thrones, although you probably <laughs> not Sandor Clegane, <laughs> not Sandor Clegane, um, the Hound, the ship, um, <laughs> by the end of the story, and presumably is off having robot sex um, while Tinian and Kinlombek are hanging out with the uh, with the uh, the prisoners they've saved and are all having this big celebration. Um, Absolutely, you know. <laughs> You know how down bad the hound had to be in order to, in order to just betray his pilot like that. That's that's, that's fair. That's a good point. It's pretty, it's pretty down bad. <laughs> oh man, this this story is wild. This I also forgot. Crazy. I also forgot. There's a point where like where they have the the prisoners of war. They are on like this island. And like the central part of the island is fine. The sand surrounding it is basically the sand from um um crap. Is it the it's not the Muppet Treasure Island? <laughs> Stay with me. <laughs> I know. I know you know what I'm talking about. about. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a scene where basically the sand starts uh, the sand will eat people will eat uh, organic material pretty much okay yes. um and so like <laughs> not unlike the sand on Muppet Treasure Island <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember I can't remember if it's that if it's that version of Treasure Island all the words it used to come on Disney it scared the crap out of me when I was a kid but anyways uh, moving on that the sand is. Kind of an odd, like, what's interesting is, like, she brings up these really interesting factors, almost like a Chekhov's gun kind of situation, and then they only get briefly mentioned later, because all we, like, there is a point, in, like, a very Shakespearean way, mind you, there is a point where, like, um, Tinian, after... They they free they help free the prisoners, and the prisoners all turn on the uh, on the rest of the Imperials and they help them they help fight them off, and then they go back to the Hound to make sure that Bosk is captured and everything, and make sure that everything's going okay there. Um, and then when they drop Bosk off with the Imperials and then they go back to celebrate with the prisoners, there's just a brief line where she says. We didn't see any of the uh, any of the guards. The sands must have eaten good that day, and it was just a really just kind of like oh like shit like okay oh yeah no I mean that that makes sense but yeah that was just that was wild um, yeah it's it's a weird story dude um Al what do you think of this one <laughs> uh, well, it was a ride 
Um, it is a ride. <laughs> um, you know, um, yeah, I wasn't into this one for a few reasons. Um, as you say, it felt like there were a lot of things that happened in the story that kind of had the be- beginnings of being really interesting, mm-hmm. but there wasn't uh, there wasn't any follow up afterwards. Like you, um, you bring up the sand. You know, I thought for sure the sand would be a more significant player Mm. in the grander scheme of things, but it wasn't. Um, There's a point where Bosk has booby-trapped the 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 shuttle Mm. that um, (laughs) that Tinian and Chen take to release a nerve gas that will kill them. And they figure out that that's what's going to happen. And there's a sequence where they're trying to figure out a way to stop that from happening. And it's like really, um, it starts to get very tense. And you're just like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Are they going to like be able to do it and stuff like that? And you're kind of expecting this like eureka type moment where they're just like, oh, let's be innovative and like, let's do this instead. And let's work the plan or something. But then you get to the point where the um, gas is supposed to be released. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it just kind of resolves with, oh, it's all good. Flirt figured out a way to stop it. Well, but, yes, but also I think I don't think it was on a timer. Um, I, at least I read it as it wasn't on a timer. It was on whenever Bosk decided to hit it. Um, and... Because Flirt has basically tricked him into going back um, and getting captured inside that pod um, at the back of the ship, because of that, he cannot release the gas. Gotcha. Yes. That's, yes, that's right. That's the way I, I read it. Um, yes. So, <clears throat> again, it's kind of an example where, like, things things just kind of happen in weird ways. Like there's a part where Bosk releases this like spore in the spaceship that he's immune to, but causes like a really horrible reaction to Tinian. Yeah. Um, but then that just kind of happens. Mm-hmm. And like, it like, it's kind of inconvenient for Tinian for the rest of the story, but like it just kind of happens. And then he has this big show of, Oh, I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. Let me go try to figure out what's going on. Like here, have some water or whatever. And like, and by the end of that whole debacle, you're just kind of like, what was the narrative point of that happening? Like it felt like a series of almost un unrelated incidents throughout the story and then you get to a certain point and then it's just kind of like oh okay they're at the planet and now like third building is happening it's all kind of disorganized in that way um it's a lot of padding yes It's, it's, it's a lot of padding yes it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff that you get the feeling of like Kathy Tires, who again, I think she is a good writer, but I kind of got the feeling of it of she, um, she had kind of gotten the idea for this story to be like a 
40 page short story mm-hmm. and um and the editors um called her and said hey 70 to 75 that's mm-hmm. kind of like the vibe i got from a lot of the stuff she wrote about um but also and i think at the core of why you and i aren't as huge of fans of this this particular one is just that um it it doesn't feel like a bosque story yeah um all of the other stories feel very distinctly um including on the next one we're going to talk about also has the um dynamic where it kind of bounces from the bounty hunters to to like um a soldier and like it uh changes those of those perspectives back and forth and stuff Um, but even that one still feels like it's about the bounty hunter character which is the entire point of this book this one doesn't really feel like it's about bosk um and i almost wonder if i would kind of if i would have like passively enjoyed it a bit more and felt more positively about it if this had been like a story that was just like um you know like tales of the Eldian, like espionage yeah or something and it was framed as a story about tinian and chen and then it featured bosk as like a fan of favorite character i wonder if even just the framing of it kind of caused a more negative reaction for me because i went into it uh, with the mindset of oh this is going to be a boss story i'm going to learn a lot about boss i'm going to spend a lot of time with him when in reality i got like 40 to 45 pages in and it switched perspective to bosk again after having been with both a section with tinian and a section with chen and it got back to bosk and i kind of had the reaction of just like oh oh my god that's right bosk is in this story (laughs) and that felt that that did not feel great having gone into it expecting a bosk centric tale as it was kind of advertised to be yeah no i i completely agree um <clears throat> that that is why this is my least favorite of the stories um i think that w- once again there's a lot of things that i think could really work in the story if they were just framed a little bit different or handled a little bit differently um i think the idea of a rebel spy and a bounty hunter going against each other in like this kind of game of wits is an interesting concept um i think the idea of a trandoshan versus a wookie kind of storyline is another interesting concept i just do not think the execution was great on this one um um it's not what i would suggest um it is not for me part of my grand canon um but it you know it's it's all right i guess like it's not like if if you're reading this book don't like skip it or anything you know you don't it's not really i mean you can if you want to it's kind of up to you at that point but you know um al is this part of your grand canon and also uh what lantern is bosk <laughs> oh for sure um yeah so um i'll say this one is not really a part of my grand canon uh, because it it really contradicts anything else i really care about but um i'm just not invested in it um and again that could have totally 
changed had this been kind of framed and advertised as more of like a rebellion um, spy story rather than like a Bosque um, story, possibly. Um, it's hard to say for sure. But um, yeah, it's already part of my grand canon. Um, I'm actually very eager to see in um, the future in like the new canon stuff. Um, anything else we get about Bosk? Um, possibly anything else we might get about Indian and Chen because I think they have a really interesting um, dynamic and relationship with each other. You know, um, urban terms and language aside, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in like a like a hip hop sense. But um, but yeah. This one wasn't uh, quite there for me. I don't really see the inherent value of it. Um, I'm there to garner a place in my personal grand canon of the Star Wars timeline. And to ask your and to answer your secondary question, I believe Bosk, based on his characterization that I've seen, would be an orange lantern. Hmm. Okay. Specifically for the flesh. Of other living creatures. <laughs> <laughs> that's his. That's his source of avarice. <laughs> yeah, that's the source of avarice. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. He's like he's like if he's like if was somehow even more terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. Um. Yeah, I, I I I'll I'll roll with that definitely. Um. <clears throat> so moving on to not only the story that surprised me the most um just because of I, like i said i didn't know a whole lot about these characters but also is my favorite of the stories in this book um, um are we gonna do a break in between the two parts no no we're just gonna we're just going straight we're just going straight into it okay i got you cool yeah um uh, uh, sorry guys we had, we had thought about maybe making this a two-parter but now it's just gonna be a long episode just you know it's it's okay we're, we're, we're doing good it's gonna be a long boy yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a long it's a long boy. Um, it's five stories, though. Yeah, yeah, f- five five stories that all could ha- have their own episode, honestly. Um, but we're just we're just going for it. Um, the next one is oh goodness, I've got the t- I've got the title. Hang on, yeah, but hang on. Of possible futures. Ah, yes, of possible futures. The tale of Zuckus and Forlorn. Um, like I said, this is my favorite of the stories. Um, the basic premise is that as as already stated zuckus is a gand who is which is a species that has the ability to kind of see parts of a future uh they they call it this they have the foresight of intuition and because of that they are able to see certain parts of different futures possibilities um and that is how zuckus is able to plan ahead for a lot of different people, uh, different hunts that he goes on. And because of that, he has basically figured out that the rebels are going to be at Hoth. Okay. So, which once again, like you said, Al, um, kind of makes Hoth kind of a crowded airspace um, <laughs> in, in hindsight, because apparently Zuggis and Forlom are there, Dengar is there, and spoiler alert for the next story, Boba Fett is already there um, ahead of time. Um, and then the Imperials show up. So, um, but uh, Forlom and Zuckus have recently gone after a 
imperial governor, if I remember correctly. And because of it, are basically on poor terms with Darth Vader. And they are effectively trying to get back in his good graces by hunting down the rebels. And when they, they end up at Hoth, and <clears throat> they shoot at one of these um, transports that are leaving the system during the evacuation. And then they get called to the Executor, which is the, the Superstar Destroyer that Darth Vader is on with the other hunters and everything. And they get told they're going to have to go after Han and Chewbacca and the rest of the Millennium Falcon. And so they start doing their thing. But before that, they they realize that they're going to... They make the realization that um, they are behind everyone else. That there is no way they're going to be able to capture them in time. Um, so much so that there's a point where... Um, I think Zuck. I think Zuckus gets. I don't know if he sees it or if he or if he like hears about it, like on channels or something like that, where um, Boba Fett already has Han. Mm. Um, and so because of that, they're like, "Well, we we have to figure out something else." And one of the things they do is they are heading back to Hoth. Um. I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like I'm skipping something. Excuse me. No, no, I don't, I don't think I am. Okay, they head back to Hoth. Okay, good. Yeah. Basically, to um, to save the rebels that are on the ship that they shot down or attempted to. Um, and from there, they end up going to the rebellion, and they save the rebels after this very kind of tense kind of standoff between the two. And they save the rebels, and the, on the other end of that, because like Al said, this does take uh, it is kind of a two stories in one kind of thing, where you have the story of Torin Torin Far and her sister Simak, um, who were rebels on Hoth, and are basically trying to figure out how to survive in a ship that basically has no power. And they're trying to figure out, like, okay, we have escape pods. We're going to send a certain number of people back to Hoth um, to try and survive down there because we are all about to run out of oxygen. Um, the Empire is going from ship to ship, picking up any stragglers, and we know that we're going to be there eventually. And as they are, after they send the escape pods and they are trying to figure out, you know, like, their next move, that's when Zuckus and Forlom show back up, and what, what appears to be, because like their whole plan at first is they're going to take the rebels and then sell them, basically sell them to the Empire for lack of a better term, um, with because they all have bounties on their head, and um, what's really interesting is that there is a turn between. There is this very interesting turn between they're going to turn on these people and continue to be bounty hunters into what is effectively they are going to be members of the rebellion, which I did not see coming at all. Um, I'm not a Gant. Um, and uh, 
I don't know. I just I really really like this story, um, specifically specifically in in this book itself because of course the very first story deals with IG eighty eight gaining sentience and going into basically well humans basically suck and I can rule the entire galaxy if I really wanted to. So let's try that. You contrast that with a character like Forlom, who is also a droid, but he is a droid that his gaining of sentience, <laughs> this is going to sound rude, but it was way less ambitious um, <laughs> in the sense of like, he starts off by becoming a thief and then he becomes a hunter and then he starts to basically value wealth. But it's interesting because he he starts using equations in his head to figure out how to act more like a human, like how to be more of a humanoid character, which I thought was a really interesting way to write him. Mm -hmm. um, that he is effectively using like mathematical equations to to imitate emotions and desires, um, which would be which would be kind of terrifying if I was talking about a human that way. Um, but since it's a droid, it's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> I just described a sociopath. No, um, Orlan was not a sociopath. Um, but it's interesting that he is attempting to try to learn more about the people around him because he wants to be more like them. And he has this he has this kind of desire to be more like them. And that's where his loyalty to Zuckus comes in. Um, one, because he, it starts off because he wants to learn about these intuition abilities and eventually wants to become a force user, which is once again, wild to me, had no idea this, that's where this story was going. Um, but, um, it comes, it, it eventually like, it's never really stated, but you start to realize that it's actually, more of a loyalty between the two that is just really, really interesting. And I, and I really, really liked it. Um, but, but Al, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of let you kind of take it from there. Uh, talking about like what happens when they get to the rebellion and, uh, and, and what you thought of the, of the story. I, I'm, I apologize. I feel like I took up a whole lot of that. No, no, you're fine. Um, yeah. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by this one. Um, again, um, Zuckus and Forlom were the characters that I knew the least about. Um, and to be honest, they were the only characters on the cover of the book who I did not know their names. Um, so, so like I was going in completely blank slate um, into this story. Um, and I was really pleasantly surprised. I think that individually the two characters are really interesting on their own uh between this idea of zuckus um having this special um skill of intuition of kind of being able to to see into the future possible diverging paths of the future um felt kind of like um maybe not a Horse power, but kind of horse adjacent, um, for sure. Um, having that ability, how he had to kind of take time and focus and meditate in order to gain those insights. Um, I thought that was interesting. And in, in Forlom, the premise of his character being a droid, 
who is an assassin who's a mercenary and bounty hunter, but is constantly trying to find ways to improve himself. And um, just for the sole purpose um, of being the best version of himself he can be, um, even though that version of himself um, is really good at killing people. Um, it, was, it was kind of inspiring in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, again, as you said, you know, this idea that um, the approach that Forlom takes to trying to learn how to use intuition and uh, possibly one day figuring out a way how to use the force and things like that. Uh, this idea, this central idea of his character of being a droid who wants to improve and transcend what he already is, um, that idea loops back to just that really interesting theme that you see all the time in science fiction of this idea of what is an AI capable of as far as not only understanding what it itself is, but as far as as having um, ideas and having um, desires and drives to become more and to transcend what it is. Um, that comes up again in this one. And I think I will always think that's really, really interesting um, fascinating of an idea for a story. But um, yeah, it basically, I don't want to just like use this story as a way to further criticize the Bosk story, but it really is a story that feels like it takes what the Bosk story was trying to do and just does it way better. Because as far as like having the changing perspectives between the three characters, having kind of originally conflicting goals and things like that, um throughout the story um it just felt a lot more concise and a lot more reasonable as as um a story than on um, the boss tale did um i really love um i like Zuckus a lot i think he's a cool character yeah. but i just really love seeing f- Orlom's reaction and thought processes in response to various things. Mm. Um, in particular, there's um, there's two parts of the story that really stand out to me. One is when they first go back to the transport to um, quote-unquote offer to rescue them, because I think at that point they were s- s- still planning to like figure out a way to salvage the whole thing and not be punished by Vader in the Empire. Yeah. And um and so they go back and Forlom is just like, hello, we are here to offer you rescue. We are secretly agents of the rebellion and we are here to help you all. Um and um <laughs> she's just like, I'm not sure, can all of us come with you? Like if all of us can't come with you, then, like, um, I'm not sure I trust this author. Um, and Forlom is just kind of, like, processing, pr- 
processing. And he just kind of like grabs her and holds her like at gunpoint. And it's just like, we are here to rescue you. Please get on the ship. Um, and just see, I just love that so much because like he was just like, okay, this is, this is what my processors are telling me is the best way to do this. <laughs> like, let's go. Um, this is now. Lucas is just there along for the ride. He's just like, okay, let's see where this goes. <laughs> but um, the other part that really sticks out to me, um, that's a little bit as funny and goes a long way towards, I think, what the story's really trying to do, is when... They've returned. They've gotten back to the rebellion. Um, Zuckus is being worked on by the medical droids um, and th things like that. Um, and Forlom is there, kind of like as a guard, like watching over him and stuff. And um, and. He comes back. I'm sorry, I cannot recall her name at all. Uh, Torin. Torin, yes. Yeah. T O R Y N. Good lord. Um, yeah. So, um, and Torin comes to like go and take on Zuckus and offer them a chance to like um, uh, be be honored at the ceremony and like um, and spectate her receiving her promotion and things like that. And she sees that Forlom has his blaster drawn. Um, because Forlom is just like, okay, um, if we're going to go, we need to go. We need to try to capture as many high-ranking rebels as we can. Like, we have to f figure this out and we have to go tonight. Like, he's ready to betray them at that point. Um, and um, and Torin shows up and sees that his blaster's drawn. And she says, is everything okay? Um, and that, like, kind of throws him for a loop, which I think is really cool. Because he just, like, she does, she sees me with my blaster drawn. And she comes unarmed. And she, like, the thought that we are going to betray her, like, isn't even in her mind. Like, that's just, like, that gives him trouble trying to, like, to process that, right? And, like, it's kind of a punctuation mark on Forlom's arc in this story where he's gradually coming to terms with the fact that, like, you know, not everything is governed by logic and chances and, you know, a percent-based rate of success or failure to certain things. Like, not everything is going to make sense. Um, and that's just a really weird but kind of exciting concept to him as a droid. Um, and so he encounters that, and that's really the thing that kind of leads to him agreeing to actually join the rebellion in earnest now. Um, he just is kind of like, you know, I think there are things I can learn here. Um, and so I just thought that that was a really, really cool kind of interaction to see. And it was a really cool direction to kind of take that character, um, and that concept. So I um, know I was really, 
I was really pleasantly surprised with this one. Um, I wasn't sure how it feel about it going into it, but um, it was handled really well. And for having a story that takes a lot of turns and kind of unexpected twists, um, it was still able to really focus on the characters, which I think was really um, skillful on his part. Uh, this is the only thing I've ever read of of the author, um, M. Shane Bell. Um, yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention who it was by. Yeah, um, this is the only thing of his I've ever read, but it makes me very interested to read some of his other stuff because it was just handled very well um, and, um, and balanced really well. So, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I completely agree. Um, everything about the story was great. Um, I, I really like the connection between Forlom and Zuckus. I like that they have, like, they even talk about it. it it's kind of a, it, it's a subtle thing where they keep going back and forth because both of them just assume the other one is a partner, like, as working together, like, as bounty mm -hmm. hunters. But then both of them, like, and they both have these internal monologues at different points of times where they basically... They do everything except for saying, I love that person. Like, they do everything except for saying, I am here because of them. Um, like, because the reason that Zuckus is being worked on at the end there is because um, he, so Gans cannot breathe oxygen uh, the same way uh, as humans can. They breathe in ammonia, um, which is why Zuckus always has his suit on, um, because he's always breathing ammonia. That's in... The, there was a point in time where he something happens to him. Like they talk about, it was on like a past mm -hmm. mission where basically I don't know if like the suit gets punctured or if he gets hit by like a stray blaster fire or something like that. Um, but he takes an oxygen and it basically like nearly destroys his lungs. Um, and so because of that, like he's coughing constantly. He's he's taking painkillers. Um, he is doing. So many things to try to not appear weak. And even though, like, they even say that, like, the other bounty hunters hardly ever notice him, Forlom is doing everything he can, like, constantly to um, to not to not let it slip that he is in pain. Like, there's a point where Zuckus kind of, like, trips because, like, his, his knees are bad as well. He, like, trips or, like, starts coughing or something. And... Um, he Forlom starts yelling at like some of the Imperials that are around there and is like, you guys screwed up this. You can't even make a decent hallway or, or like, you know, hold down a bulwark or something or some of the, some of that. If I can't remember exactly what it is, but like he's doing that to hide the fact that Zuckus is in pain. It's a really kind of, it's subtle, but it's really effective. I, I really liked it. Um, so much so that even at the end when Zuckus is, basically succumbing to his wounds and is almost dead. Um, Forlom, like, one of the things he's thinking about is, because he even says, this won't be enough, like, capturing these people and making and selling their bounties won't be enough to get us back into good graces with Vader, won't be enough to uh, pay off certain debts that we have, but it will be enough to get Zuckus new lungs. Um, and it, that's just a really, it, it, I don't know, it's just a really, like, it's its weird to say it's a sweet story, but it, but it is. Um, especially because it does have a good ending, because because one of the other reasons that Forlom starts to turn is he realizes that the Rebellion are literally trying to fix Zuckus without any kind of hope of 
payment or anything like that. Like they offer them those positions on like that strike force or whatever at the end, but it's not as in a, you know, we saved you from we or we we saved your friend. Now you have to help us. It's more of just a, do you want to join with us? We could use guys like you. Um, and then it go like it it at the end, you know, because once again, it's kind of a feel good story. Um, Zuckus or Forlom does achieve intuition, like he he does actually achieve it, and he even has a point where like he kind of sees like the very like distant future, um, kind of referencing the Legends version of like Luke's New Jedi Academy, and um, he's hanging out with some of the other students. And he even says something to the effect of like maybe I could use the force or like something something like that, and that's just how it ends, you know. And it's and mm. for me, it is one hundred percent my grand canon um, because yeah. it does not contra- it does not contradict anything else. Um, it contradicts the new like War of the Bounty Hunter stuff a little bit, um, really kind of a lot of bit honestly, um, but. Um, but at the same time, I just really like this. Um, and, and, and until, cause like Forlom and Zuckus aren't massive parts of that story. So until, and until they take on massive roles, um, this is going to be my, my canon is that they went after Han. They realized they couldn't beat anyone else. And then basically turned into rebellion, uh, uh, heroes of the rebellion. And then eventually Forlom became a force user, I guess. Um, and I, I don't know. I just I I really love this story. And and yeah. So Al, is this in your grand canon? And also, uh, what lanterns are Forlom and Zuckus, or are mm. they both the same? Mm. Ooh, indeed. Um, yeah, I would accept this into my grand canon. Um, um, again, um, it doesn't contradict uh, with anything that um, I've either um, read or viewed um, at this point. Um, again, I am not caught up on War of the Bounty Hunter, so I might revisit it but um, after I get to that point. But, um, yeah, I think it's a great story. I think it does a lot of really cool things with um, these characters. And um, even to the point that, like, not only do I accept it as my grand canon, I would be really interested in reading, like, a follow-up book about yeah. the strike force that they become in charge of for the rebellion <laughs> because that sounds awesome um that sounds incredible um also i do wonder since you brought up on um, the moment of intuition that forlom has about the future jedi academy it makes me kind of wonder if that was in some way influenced by or suggested by kevin anderson because um, it kind of reminded me of uh, the Jedi Academy trilogy that he wrote in which the first class of students that Luke Skywalker has, uh, one of them isn't a droid, but he's like a synthetic humanoid. And like a part of his character is that like, um, he's like the first of like his race slash species like he's the first of like that type of humanoid um who's ever um, been force sensitive um and so like i wonder if that was like a kind of a collaborative thing that he had with evan anderson because um i don't know it just um 
um, had those um, vibes um, of that character very hard for me. But um, but no, I'm all about it. Um, in answer to your question, um, I think that by the end of the story, I would say that... Mm. I've I've got an answer if if you don't. I'm I'm gonna go with blue. I'm tempted to go with Indigo Tribe, but I think I'm gonna go with blue. For both of them? Yes. Okay. See I would I would actually say Forlom is green and Zuckus is blue. Okay. I would say that Forlom has the willpower because he keeps wanting to better mm-hmm. himself and keep going forward. And Zuckus is is the hope uh, he because he can see forward and he wants to believe in those and those possibilities. And because of that, he is able to keep Forlom going. Okay. So that's, like that's that. what I would say. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, nice. But yeah, that's a that's that's my favorite story of the book. Um, all right. Uh, I guess uh, podcast over. We don't have to do the last one. Um, oh, bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we have to. Uh, we will talk about on the last one because there, there are parts of this last one that I do like. Of I, I guess there part. are. It's a, it's such a weird one, but you, you've got the synopsis on this one. You go, go, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, sure, yeah. So, um, so the last story, um, written by Daniel, Daniel Keys, Moran. Um, is the last one standing, the tale of Boba Fett. Um, They saved the most iconic of the characters for last. Um, The tale of Boba Fett. Um, I've got some trivia for you, Mm. Jacob. Oh, You might be interested in. Okay. Um, Prior to everyone's favorite Star Wars show, the Mandalorian, uh, prior to that show getting the green light, um, Disney. Um, Disney and Lucasfilm were in talks with the author of this story about adapting um, both this and the other Boba Fett story um, that he wrote um, as the as like um, the flagship Star Wars show. Really? Plus, yes. Huh. Yeah. Um, odd alternate reality that is. <laughs> yes. How interesting. Um, it fell through, unfortunately. Um, well, I say unfortunately. Unfortunately for that guy. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he would have made a lot of money off of it. But um, it fell through, and instead um, they went with um, John Favreau's um, idea for The Mandalorian. Um, decent returns. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess I guess it turned out okay. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess there are people who like the Mandalorian, aren't there? <laughs> um, but um, yeah. Anyway, that trivia out of the way. Uh, this is a story about Boba Fett covering a lot of different um, eras. Yeah. Of Fett's life, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, it goes back to like way before. Um, like 
what I got out of it, like, shortly after the Clone Wars uh, era um, of Star Wars, where Boba Fett um, um, is exiled um, from where he was um, as a... um, um, as his backstory, um, he was basically a um, a law enforcer type character on this planet um, who was punished and exiled for having killed um, uh, this other enforcer character. Uh, we aren't told really why he killed him, um, I don't believe, but um, we are told that Boba Fett was convinced that it was the right thing to do because this other guy was um, a bad dude um, who did bad things. Um, and that's all we're really told. Um, he's convinced it was the right thing to do. He doesn't hold any regrets, and he is exiled from um, on this planet he was on. Um, we get to where the title of the story, The Last One Standing, comes from, where Boba Fett... Um, prior to the events of A New Hope, um, Boba Fett is on a bounty hunting job um, to to kill or capture this random rich dude that somebody once captured or killed. Um, again, you aren't told a lot about his target, but what you are told about is while he's on this planet, he is viewing this kind of Roman Colosseum-esque kind of exercise they do on this planet where um, criminals on the planet are put into essentially an MMA octagon style (laughs) arena and they are forced to fight each other and whoever comes out on top, whoever is the last one standing, is um, allowed to, I guess, it away with the crimes they committed. Um, I feel like if you're really good at hand-to-hand, at hand-to-hand combat, this is kind of like the planet you want to be a criminal on, um, because that sounds great. Um, but um, I digress. Um, and who does Boba Fett find in this MMA battle royale? Um, then a young Han Solo. Um and everyone is just kind of like, oh, Han Solo's really small compared to all these other dudes. Um, he's going to get um, kind of ganged up on first. Um, you know, this kid's, you know, he's done for. Um, we don't get to spectate the fight, which was kind of frustrating to me. But um, we're told eventually, of course, that Han Solo wins. He escapes, all that good stuff. Um, we skip around and jump around a bit. Uh, We eventually get to Return of the Jedi um, just before Luke Skywalker um, comes to Jabba's palace. Um, um, Or just after, I'm sorry. Um, And um, he and Leia are captured. Um, Jabba sends Princess Leia to the chambers of Boba Fett as kind of like a way to say, hey, thanks for capturing Han Solo. Sorry, I'm going to go ahead and kill Han Solo um, and the rest of them um, instead of giving them over to you or a bounty with Darth Vader. 
um, here have this um, prisoner instead. Um, and Boba Fett, thankfully in this story, um, um, refuses to like do anything with her, um, refuses to force himself upon her in any way or anything like that, right? Um, this brings me to a weird part of this story in its depiction of Boba Fett, where Boba Fett is depicted as being very egoistic, um, almost to use like um, a ten dollar word, almost like heresaical, um, very obsessed with like. If something is against the law, it's wrong. If something is goes against his code of ethics or morality, it's wrong. And those things and those people deserve to be punished regardless of the context, regardless of the extenuating circumstances. And he kind of plays around with that to kind of justify his allegiance to the Empire um, as far as taking their jobs as compared to taking jobs of... of of the people he he's hunting and things like that all these various things right um you learn that his grudge against han solo almost kind of seems to boil down to him having having ran spice yeah which is like a drug um in on the star wars world um kind of underwhelming if you will but um you almost you almost kind of prefer he doesn't have anything personal against han solo <laughs> That is just kind of all a part of the job, but um, uh, but there you go, everybody. Weed's bad, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, but, and this is going this is going to kind of characterize um, an issue I have with this portrayal of Boba Fett is that when confronted with Princess Leia in his chambers, you know he refuses to try anything with her. And when she asks him why, he says, well, sex outside of the confines of marriage is immoral. To which Aya so aptly responds, um, as is, you know, forced or coerced sex or rape. And, and Boba Fett is just kind of like, hmm, ah, yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> and it's just like... <laughs> Dude, what is this? What is this interpretation of the character? Um, it's very strange. It's very strange. And so it goes on. You know, um, everybody recalls um, Return of the Jedi. Um, he falls into the Sarlacc pit. Gradually, he fights his way out of the Sarlacc pit. That incident is not recounted in this story. Um, however, I have found through a little bit of research that um, that event is covered by um, the other short story that this author wrote um, about Boba Fett. Um, um, and possibly in other things as well, but um, um, it's covered in that story instead. Um, Daniel Keyes Moran does not feel the need to comment on Boba Fett being the best man at Dengar's wedding. Um, <laughs> that, that detail, unfortunately, is left out. But um, um, there's kind of a time skip, and there's an unexpected kind of perspective skip to Hans Solo. 
Um, Han Solo is kind of in like the beginning of kind of like the autumn of his life, if you will, right? Uh, this takes place after Thrawn trilogy. This takes place after um, um, Jedi Academy trilogy. Um, so like he has the three kids with Leia. Um, Luke is off world at his own Jedi Academy. All those things. Um, Han Solo finds himself alone because the kids Leia are on um, a diplomacy trip and things like that. Um, and so Han Solo gets kind of in his own thoughts, in his own head, and he thinks, well, I don't have anything better to do. I'm going to take my ship out and go to that old planet I found myself on where I almost got killed by three strong men. Um, which, like, I'm sure, it's whatever. Um, but you also learned that after escaping from the Sarlacc pit, um, Poba Fett um, continued his career as a bounty hunter. Um, and it references a couple of his other adventures that are located in various other books and comics and things like that. But um, he tracks down a really high, it's like the highest paying bounty like in the galaxy at that point. He tracks him down. He finds him. I kind of want a story about the bounty guy because he seemed really interesting. But um, what happens with him um, as it ends up is kind of unrelated to everything else going on. Um, uh, this story is paced kind of weird. If y'all can't really tell, <laughs> it's kind of paced oddly, but um, eventually Boba Fett is tipped off by somebody on that planet that Han Solo has returned. Right. Han Solo is there talking to one of the leaders of the planet about possibly doing a run for them to get uh, their shipment from point A to point B. Boba Fett hears about this goes to the planet, kind of has a showdown with Han Solo. Now, let me just say, as kind of warm or negative I am about the majority of this story, the point in the story where Fett and Han Solo are on the same planet, in my opinion, is like way better than anything else that happens in the story. Yeah. 10 to 12 pages like are much more high paced, high octane, uh, much more tense stuff. Um, and it ends with Fett and Solo kind of like having caught up to each other. They both kind of have a blaster aimed at each other's heart and uh, they just kind of talk. They talk about, you know, how they got here why they're still doing these things on the kind of changes they've gone through and things like that. And it kind of ends on a cliffhanger, um, which is actually a choice that I like. I kind of like that it ends on a cliffhanger. We're kind of forced to kind of think about what we think happens between these characters who have undergone um, all these various experiences and, and arcs and things like that. So I do like that part. Um, I'll throw it over to Jacob because that's kind of a rough synopsis. I skipped over a couple things, but 
Uh, that's kind of the meat and potatoes of the story. Um, Jacob, tell me how you felt about the last one standing, the tale of Boba Fett. So, so I do agree with you that like the the last like forty pages of the story, <laughs> of the story, and I realize that sounds like a lot, um, and it is, but it's because. Daniel Keyes Moran, like, I, I didn't know that he had written another one. Um, th- this is the first story I'd ever read of his. Um, it, the first 30 pages of this goes very, very quick, like a Boba Fett, like, greatest hits. Um, <laughs> because, like, <laughs> there's a point where they they mention Dodo Cast yeah. and, how, and how Boba got his second set of armor. Um, because cannot, because in, in, in the legends canon, Boba loses his original armor in the Sarlacc pit, mm-hmm. um, and then has to crawl out basically like naked pretty much. And then ends up, um, Beskar at this point wasn't like, like it was rare, but it wasn't as rare. Like it wasn't like hunted, like, like it is in the Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett and everything. And then the new canon. Um, which I like a lot better actually, but, um, at this point, like he goes and he gets more, uh, he, he goes and he's trying to kind of live his own life for a while. And then Jodo Cass starts, um, he takes up the Mandalorian armor or he finds another pair of, uh, like Mandalorian armor and then starts saying he's Boba Fett. And so Boba Fett's like, well, I don't want to deal with. Or he's like, I don't want anyone else ruining my good name. And so then he goes after him and kills him. All of that is told in a paragraph, like in this story. <laughs> um, and if, I was, anyone, if anyone is interested in that story, by the way, that is one of the comics included in the um, Oba Fett uh, ties um, comic book. Um, yeah. They collected a bunch of those in like one trade um that's one of the ones that's in there um it's really cool if anyone's interested but um anyway please continue no 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 you're good it's because i was i was going to mention that it's actually um because i started looking that up after we were talking about earlier today um it's a really cool trade because there was a point in like the late 90s um like kind of concurrent with this story because this uh, the these stories came out i think in 96 right before the 20th anniversary of new hope and right before basically the star Wars resurgence was going to happen. Um, and because of it, everyone started freaking out about Boba Fett. And so with this story and then the dark horse comics, they went over and were like, dude, we're going to do like a bunch of one shots. Like every, like every three or four months, there was a new Boba Fett one shot on the stands, basically. Um, and a lot of, and you know, to, to varying degrees of, of success, but some of them were actually really good. And the ones that were, that were collected in that, um, in the collection that I was just talking about, the, the Blood Ties collection, are all really good. And then there's also uh, the Blood Ties story, which take, which is a lot later, like more, or written more recently, but still, yeah, all that stuff's really good. Um, but like, there's a lot of things that are mentioned in this story and like paragraphs or like quick sentences that happen in those one shots, um, which I actually don't know who wrote those one shots. It might've been all, it might all be Daniel Keyes Moran. Now that I think about it, I need to look that up. Um, 
But um, no, it's just that that part was interesting. But in the last 40 pages, there's a point where it switches to Han Solo for like a solid six pages, which doesn't sound like a lot until you realize there's only 70 or so pages in each short story. And so I was like, what are they really setting up for here? Because it wasn't Han Solo like doing Han Solo things. It was kind of Han Solo. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to say it and I'm going to make everyone upset with me. It was Han Solo doing what Luke does in The Last Jedi. Oh, <laughs> because it was Han Solo realizing I've gotten old and I might not be as good as as I, as I was years ago. And and maybe I was never maybe I was never truly as good as everyone thought I was. It's that mentality. And then he goes out and is really just like it's a mixture of that. And then also him kind of like pushing that to the side and just kind of being like, I'm just bored. Um, which honestly, I loved. I th- I was like, that is the <laughs> most Han Solo style of handling this. Like the between either uh, between either doing like somewhere be- somewhere between that aspect and what we see in the Force Awakens is exactly how I imagine Han kind of growing older. Um, mm. Of course, with, with the with the Force Awakens, of course, extenuating circumstances happen with you know his son and everything from there, and so that kind of pushes him into a different kind of style. Um, but but no, I just I I really like the interpretation of Han there, um, and you know that that was kind of the point where I really started to enjoy um, this storyline was dealing more so with the Han versus Boba stuff. But I could not get past the fact that Boba, like you said, has this like legalistic understanding of morals and this kind of moral code. And for the record, if you are making the choice of abstinence or a straight edge lifestyle, there is nothing wrong with that. We are not I, I do not want to make that statement. OK, true. True. Because you do your thing. Yeah, exactly. You do your thing. There's nothing wrong with that. However, if you're doing your thing and then like, you know, the next day you like burn someone alive with a flamethrower on a a bounty hunt, you can't really cast too many stones from that glass house. (laughs) Um, You know, because because there is a point where I I, I described this today talking with with Alan Josh about the story as he is effectively Michael Shannon's character from Boardwalk Empire. If you have not seen that show, one, you should, because it's really good. Um, but Michael Shannon is this, um, they're not he, they're not FBI yet, because that's not around at the time, but effectively he is trying to stop bootleggers, and he will go to any means necessary to stop the act of, of bootlegging. He hates alcohol that much. But meanwhile, he's like inter like torturing people for interrogate and like interrogation tactics. Um, he's beating people down in alleys, you know, he he kills someone at one point. Like it's it's a whole thing, okay? Um Boba Fett is basically this. There is the the person that he is his target when he sees a younger Han Solo is this guy who who um, deals in spice, okay? <laughs> and, 
like Al was saying when he said when he said marijuana is bad or weed is bad, it's because everything about spice that is said in this story is basically it's technically illegal, but it probably shouldn't be. You know what I'm saying? And for some reason, Boba Fett like goes off on this like tirade about how spice only leads to other drugs and then <laughs> proceeds to blow everyone's shit away <laughs> because because they're they are trading in spice it is one of the weirdest story lo- story threads i've ever seen once again not because i am a huge advocate for any of that but at the same time okay Here's my thought process. Because reading this in 2022, all right, we are currently three months removed from a show where the biggest complaints from the first, like, three episodes were that Boba Fett lost his edge after the Sarlacc pit, okay? Once again... Although I do not condone, (laughs) although there is nothing wrong with an abstinent lifestyle and there is nothing wrong with, with, you know, fighting against drugs and everything. In the mid nineties, the concept of like, like, like James Bond is about to make a comeback at that point. Okay. And Goldeneye, James Bond sleeps with a lot of women and they are not married. If James Bond is considered to be the epitome of, like, cool, and we're trying to do the story where Boba Fett is the cool character, that just seemed like an odd choice to me, okay? And now, some people might say, okay, well, they were trying to target this towards a younger audience, and of course, this was during the movement where, you know... Like, 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 Dare was a big thing, they were, they were trying to, like, stop all that, they were, um... I was homeschooled, so I'm not sure, but I feel like that was probably a point in time where they started talking uh, more to kids about uh, safe sex and stuff like that. So I guess that is a thing. But at the same time, that is still a it's still a really weird way to go about it, because then I I do. Once again, I have to ask, Okay, so was there a classroom where in the same week they did sex ed? And then they also had a dare officer come in. <laughs> Did they also have a firefighter as well? Because I certainly hope so. Because otherwise, they missed at least one of the three major things that this story is trying to get across. <laughs> 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 because there's never, because there's never a point where he's like burning people alive is <laughs> is immoral. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just a really the themes of of like. That central, there's like a central part, like a right in the middle of this story. The themes of this story get, are very, very odd. Um, but to your point, Al, like you said, at the end of it, though, the last like 12 pages are written really well, so much so that I almost wish that that was more so what the story was about. And I know that they were trying to do like this whole thing where, um, they were all trying to connect to Empire Strikes Back and the the scene with the bounty hunters. But I almost wish that they had like done that as like a prologue and then of like fast forward immediately to this like 
basically these two these two old dogs pretty much on the last on their last leg pretty much like the their final like mission against each other pretty much um because that like you said those those last few pages between han and boba are the best parts of this entire story and really it's saving grace in my opinion um I don't, I don't know it was just i i didn't really like the story until that honestly um one thing that I did notice that was interesting, and it was interesting to me because I just I just recently kind of started looking more into it. Um, but and I guess if if I had known this, I'd completely forgotten about it. So this story opens with him being called Jaster Mareel, which was at this point in 1996's Star Wars canon, Boba Fett's real name before he was exiled. Now What's interesting is how they would make that into the canon and in, in, in roughly about six years after the story was written. Because, of course, in episode two, we find out that his father was Django. Um, he is a clone of Django, uh, unaltered, so on and so forth. And so he ages, you know, normally. So what we come to find out in... Django Fett Open Season, I think is what it's called. Um, it is the comic that leads right into the Star Wars Bounty Hunter video game, um, which is coming next month for EU or EU, by the way. Just wanted to give that a shout out. Woo! Um, woo. Um, Jaster Mareel was... And, and, of course, this is, this is pre... Take Clone Wars out of this. This is pre-Clone Wars Mandalorian storyline, okay? So, Jaster Mareel was a Mandalorian, and the... This part's interesting, because this is this is in Legends and New Canon as well. Um, the true Mandalorians, a.k.a. Satine, if you want to get to the... Go on to the... Uh, uh, on the uh, Clone Wars side of things, the true Mandalorians uh, and Satine and Bo-Katan split off and want to make Mandalore something different. Um, pacifism wasn't as big of a thing at this point, I don't think, in, in the storyline, but that was a thing. Um, and then Death Watch, the Vizslas, and uh, as we have now come to find out in uh, Book of Boba Fett season, uh, season one, um, the armorer and uh, Din Djarin's people, um, that side of Mandalore, they did the split. Okay, so when this happens, a big war breaks out, and Jaster Mareel takes in a young Django Fett <clears throat> whose parents were killed and then adopts him into the true Mandalorians. This is why a lot of people will make the statement that Boba and Django are not technically Mandalorians. Um, which is even more interesting when Bo-Katan says that he's not a true Mandalorian, even though, by all accounts, they both follow the same creed, but that's a whole conversation for another time of why I don't like Bo-Katan. Yeah, I said it. Um, moving on, though. <laughs> um, after that there's a point where Jaster gets um, betrayed by um, he is betrayed by like a second in command who isn't Django. Um, 
and is killed. Django kills the man who killed Jaster, his adopted father. And then Django takes over. And then somehow, I can't remember how Death Watch gets away. But the long and short of it is, is that Death Watch gets away because they know that the Jedi are coming. And the Jedi strike force led by Count Dooku um, and the rest of the super corrupt, hypocritical uh, prequel era Jedi Council at this point go and basically slaughter all the Mandalorians except for Jango Fett. When Jango Fett is the only one left alive, that's when Count Dooku sees him and is like, that's someone worth keeping an eye on. Um, and roughly 10 years later, uh, sifo and him are like, hey, we need to build up an army. And Palpatine's like, well, who could you clone? And uh, Count Dooku's like, I've got an idea. And then he goes and he finds Jango Fett, and then the rest is history. All of that to explain why the name Jastamer Real was transferred into the new canon. And to the best of my knowledge, still current canon. I have not heard anything against um, Django's origin, which is really the only, like, like the major complaint I have for Book of Boba Fett. And I'm hoping they go more into that in future seasons. I would love to see a, like, a Django Boba kind of origin. I'd be really intrigued to see that. Um but, you know, that's kind of – that's a different discussion. That's a way different discussion. I'm, I'm getting very – I've gotten very off topic, and I do apologize. Uh, um, but I was intrigued by that. When it said Jastam real, like, that's when I was like, okay, so how old is that storyline? Because I had literally just looked that up of the about the comic, and then when I realized, no, this is Boba. Boba's real name was Jastam real at this point in time. Um, and – I don't know. Al, correct me if I'm wrong. They don't mention him as a Mandalorian in this. He just wears Mandalorian armor, right? That is correct. Yeah, because I think at this point, like, because this is, I think at this point, Mandal the Mandalorians weren't a a species. They were like a tribe of humanoids, um, as opposed to what they would eventually become in like the Sith war comics and the tales of the Jedi comics, um, which once again, I'm getting way off topic. now, <laughs> But um, um, I think Mandalorian armor at that point was just kind of considered to be like ancient and kind of better armor and everything. And I think that's more so he's not technically a Mandalorian at this point as he is just a random guy. And he takes the Mandalorian armor because it's considered some of the best armor at the time. That's that. Yeah, that's kind of, it's interesting to see how the character has grown and changed over the years. That, that part's really kind of the interesting aspect of the story. Um, but all that to say, yeah, I've, I've been rambling far too long. I do apologize, Al. Um, all that to say, uh, the last part of this book is where it shines, um, and that should have been the entire, uh, the entire story, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, um, that it's not my it's not my grand canon, no, because it, it 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 can't be. Um, mainly because like one, everything about him getting out of the Starlight is different, um, and and also everything about his connection to Han Solo at the, at that point is completely different from 
what we see in Force Awakens and uh, going forward. And I'm one of those guys. I really like Force Awakens. So, no, that this this part of the story cannot be part of my grand canon. But, Al, is a part of yours? Uh, what were some of your thoughts on the story? And uh, what lantern is Boba? Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, um, no, yeah, this isn't. Um, this is not going to be in my grand canon. Um, I don't like how Boba is characterized in this. Um, I think it's very weird and awkward. I think that the fact I'm surprised that while Daniel, while Daniel Keyes Moran was writing this, when he got to the point in the scene at Jabba's palace where, where Boba and Aya were going back and forth about how flawed his reasoning is Mm -hmm. that at that point, the author didn't like step back and just be like, you know what? This actually does not make a ton of sense for this character. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, like, huh? I kind of put myself into a hole here because yeah, this is weird. But, um, but um, yeah, this isn't, <laughs> this is not in my grand canon. And you know what? It, We would kind of be working ourselves into a corner here if we were to say that it's a part of our grand canon. And, and the reason why I say that is because, like, things are going pretty fine. They're going pretty self-contained at first. Then it does the perspective switch to Han Solo. And within, like, three pages, Han Solo name drops, like three or four significant events in the old canon. Yeah. Like he's just kind of like alone with his thoughts and like he's, he's hanging out and he's thinking to himself about all the things happen, all the adventures he's been on. And he just, he just like, he names drop like all three of his kids. He, he talks about Thrawn's rebellion. Like he (laughs) talks, He talks about the resurrection of the Emperor. Like, he talks about, like, the Jedi Academy trilogy. Like, yep. he name drops so many significant things that if we were to play it, like, hardline on if something is in our grand canon or not, then by taking this story into it, we would have been taking those other, like, four major events in the Star Wars timeline into yeah. Um, so like it's impossible it's impossible unless you just really hate the sequel trilogy and I know there are people who do Mm -hmm. Um, unless you just really hate every post Disney Star Wars thing that's been made um, you're really putting yourself in a hard hard position by accepting this into your grand canon by making this the canon version of events because Han Solo had to go and just like have a history review of what's happened over the last two <laughs> years. Um, but um, all that to say, I do still think that the confrontation between um, him and Han Solo was by far the best part of the story. Um, I do still really like that it ends kind of open-ended, kind of allows you to think about the characters and and decide what you think probably happened at, at the end of it. Um so, um, yeah, if I had to go with a ring for Boba Fett, I think I 
Um, just because of the fear that he commands throughout right. the story, because you that was actually a cut really, out. I'm assuming, uh, you said, really, assuming you said yellow. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, you cut a little bit there. My bad. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would say, um, he, a little lantern ring from Boba Fett. Um, because there's actually a really cool, like, small moment in the story when Han Solo knows that somebody's, like, there to get him, but he doesn't quite know who. And so he takes care of the people he's he's with, who, who he figures out betrayed him. And then he, like, he runs off. He gets into, like, an angle of the hallway to, like, do, like, a showdown with whoever this is who's come get him. And he sees the armor that Boba Fett is wearing and he's afraid and he runs. And I think that was actually a really cool, small detail um, about those two characters is that like, even after all these years um, that, that fear um, is still with Han, even after everything he's done and everything that's happened. So um, I thought that was a very cool, small thing in the story. But, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> we've been talking for three hours. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, this is, that was Tales of the Bounty Hunters, man. I mean, it's it's definitely got some good points. It's definitely a book that I would, I mean, if you guys are still listening, you already haven't decided. Um, I would suggest um, reading it because it does have good moments. Um, it does have it does contradict a lot of the new of the new canon. Um, it does have some moments that I've that were some stories that were maybe not as good as others, but the the highlights of it, particularly in the IG eighty eight and the four Laman Zuckus stories, um make the make the book worth it in my opinion both of those are very very good um yeah i i i really enjoyed it overall and uh of course always love talking star wars with my fantastic co-host al Um, yeah and uh yeah as as we already said next month we are next month you're actually getting a double dose of star wars content Ooh. Um, Al's very excited for the first one we're going to talk about, which is the 20th anniversary of Attack of the Clones. Um, Yeah, if you if you guys hadn't realized that it's been 20 years since that movie came out. um, Yeah, don't don't worry. I'm old, too, Um, because I remember seeing that in theaters when I was like eight. And uh, yeah. And then I start doing quick math in my head, and I'm like, oh, I'm almost 30. And then everything just gets wild. But um, <laughs> that doesn't mean that we can't keep talking about Star Wars. Because not only do we have the 20th anniversary of Attack of the Clones next month, but also we're talking about another great bounty hunter pick. Um, we're talking about our first Star Wars video game that's going to be on this on this segment, which is Star Wars Bounty Hunter, starring Django Fett. Um and a Tordarian named Roz, who is just a delight. Um, she is a delight. She is. She really is. Um, Al finished this game like a month ago, um, being way, way ahead of of, of the class. Um, <laughs> and uh, I am working my way through it, and we will be recording that soon as well. 
And uh, yeah, we can't we cannot wait to uh, to hear what you guys think about this. We cannot wait to hear what you all really just think about the podcast in general. If you have anything that you want to hear about from Star uh, from the Star Wars universe, please let us know. Even if it's something that's like a simple like five minute answer or something like that that we could do at the beginning of a of a story, of a uh, segment, we could be happy to do that. If it's something that you want to know a lot more about, uh, or a book that you want us to check out, or a game you want us to check out. That's something we could definitely talk about for, I mean, we've got this year pretty much planned out, but that's something we could definitely talk about for next year or maybe doing like a short, like one-off kind of episode for for that as well. So if you do want to know about that, please let us know. Um, feel free to hit us up on Instagram, uh, on Twitter, um, obviously Patreon. If you guys want to show us some support, we always appreciate it. Um and we're going to be having some more stuff with Patreon and coming and coming out soon. That might be something we kind of look into more over the summer, actually. So we've got, like I said, at the beginning of all of, all of this, which seems ages ago now, um, we do have some great things planned for you all for the next couple months. We are very excited for going into the second half of this year. Um, and, yeah, we hope that you guys hang out and are enjoying some of the stuff that we're doing. And, uh, yeah, we love you all. We hope you all have a wonderful day, evening, whatever it is where you're at. Uh, and I hope that you always remember that fandom is for everyone. You guys have a good night. May the force be with you. Exosacred. <laughs>